Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, 100th episode. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. How's it going? <laughs> we've finally reached 100 and we're finally recording this show after a long period of planning. So, uh, we're here. And when I say we, I've got my co-host here from the Wings Over New Zealand live show, Grant McKeeran. Hi, Grant. Hey, Dave. How you going, man? Oh, great. Yeah, great. We're recording this show. Yay! Yes. <laughs> we've made it. <laughs> Which means once we get it out of the way, we can start putting other shows That's on again. That's the one, mate. You, you've done planning and assembling and collating and getting everything together, and I've finished moving house and got my internet working again. Huzzah! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. And half of the planning was actually trying to think, what am I going to do for the 100th show? I know. It's, it's, it's one of those things you think, gosh, that's a milestone. I've got to do something special. got to do something different. So basically, I came up with the boring sort of theme. We... we you know, there was a few suggestions thrown around, and none of them are really practical. So, um, and, and I and I did look at a, at a few options, but well, I've come down the boring route. We were going to look at some clips from the past uh, ninety nine shows and talk about some highlights. And uh, um, we've got uh, well, we'll talk a little bit about the the show itself and how it came about for anyone who might not have listened to the early episodes yeah. and or might not know what goes on behind the scenes as well. And we'll talk a bit about the behind the scenes of how these shows come together. And, yeah, we'll uh, we'll have a little bit of a preview of what's going to come too in the next 100 shows. Ooh. So, well, it might not be quite 100 <laughs> yet, but I've got, I've got a lot of stuff stacked up there to come. So Yeah, well, I mean, a whole lot that you recorded over here in Australia. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I've got a lot of stuff that's recorded here in New Zealand too that's... Yeah. Uh, going to come out so you know I, I probably don't even need to go and record any new shows for a while <laughs> to keep pumping them out although i will if anything good comes up i'll certainly be out there in, uh, in the field and getting these shows but uh, um yeah well i mean let's just talk a little bit about the beginning of it uh the beginning of the wings over new zealand show i mean uh i don't even know if you know this story grant i've probably told you a hundred times but i'll just pretend i haven't um, <laughs> I, you know, um, I've run the, the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum for um, over 11 years now and made a lot of really good friends uh, through the forum uh, in all sorts of aspects of aviation. And 
I just, you know, I, I, I just thought one day, oh, I wonder what sort of stuff's out there on the internet that you can listen to about aviation. And I found Warbird Radio, and I started listening to it, and I thought, wow, this is really good. It's like, it's a podcast or, or a radio. You can tune in live, uh, and you can listen to people talking about warbirds. And I thought, well, how cool is that? And after listening to that for. I don't know, maybe a couple of months, so I was downloading all their back catalogue and stuff, and it suddenly dawned on me, geez, I could be doing this here in New Zealand. That would be a really, really good idea, because nobody's ever done that in New Zealand. And that was back in 2011, um, and I thought, you know, I've got I've got um, interviewing skills, I've got, which are, you know, I'd already been interviewing a lot of people f- for film work and stuff like that, and I've got editing skills, I've got the, got the gear for editing, uh, and I've got all the contacts in, in aviation through the forum, and it all sort of seemed like such a great idea. And that night, I was chatting online with my friend Kerry Carlisle, a very good friend of mine that goes right back to you know when I was a kid, we were mates, and I said to him about my idea, and he said, that's a great idea, that's a really good idea. And then literally 24 hours later, and I hadn't even had any time to, to think about anything more, a courier arrives and there's a parcel from Kerry and and he's gone and bought me a digital audio recorder. <laughs> Honestly, and he's like, and he, and, he, and I, I contacted him again. And he said, "Yeah, no, go on, go and go, go and do it." And so that's how it started. He he sent me this damn thing down on the courier and I just went, "Wow, that's brilliant!" Now what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you know, um, so I started. You know, I went straight to the forum. Um, went to uh, at the time the only other moderator on the forum was Craig Brankin and uh, a good mate of mine and I said to him hey let's let's give this a go let's try this out and see if we can um get this going and and I want you on as the first guest and so he uh, he he agreed to do it because he was in New Zealand at the time he lives in Canberra although he's a Kiwi originally um and so he came on the show and we did did an episode and it seemed to work and then I got a few more friends um, Bruce Cook and uh, Don Sims and uh, Gavin Conroy recorded with them and I started pulling some old recordings out that I'd done as well um, in my film work and, and that, it, it all just went from there so that's how it, that's how it began and um, and it actually took it took me a lot of time to get my head around how to get it from an edited piece onto the internet and that comes that comes down to you grant that comes down to you and it comes down to steve fisher and um also i have to say errol cave because errol's one errol's one who put you and me together um and i got really good advice from you and from steve um on exactly what i needed to do and I, in the end you basically had to talk me through step by step yeah, you got you yeah, and you're still doing it because every time something technical comes up, I'm going, Grant, what do I yeah. do? What's this bit mean? Why is that doing that? Why isn't that showing up here? And oh my God, what's gone wrong here? And it's not just it's not just for Wings Over New Zealand; it's for other adventures as well. Because you know mm. you've started this Wings Over New Zealand, and it's going well, and we'll we'll run through that in a bit. But you've also spun off a few other things. You know, you've you've got your courage and valor, and, and New Zealand is yeah. at war, and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then there's the live show as well, which you're yeah. my co-host on, um, <laughs> which which is even more nerve-wracking because we're doing it live and, uh, you know, we don't get to edit out all of our mistakes. <laughs> uh, the, the mistakes go to air. Yeah. Uh, 
Usually at least one per episode we have. Only one. (laughs) (laughs) I said at least one. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But actually, we're getting better at it. But, uh, I mean, it's it's almost become a little, uh, you know, when's it going to happen kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because Matt's schedule running around... uh, being uh you know air show, doing airshow commentary around the US and uh, mm. and then uh, a couple of times I've been uh, busy with day job and then there's been health and everything it's it's it gets really interesting trying to make it happen doesn't it it does it does so um, but we we should be back uh, on the air in May uh, sometime in May mid May uh, <laughs> but anyway uh, yeah uh, you know this. This is uh, this is the the, the show. We, we've come to a hundred episodes of the podcast. We've also done uh, how many is it? I think I might be up to about twelve or something on the on the live oh, show. But with the pod, yeah, with the podcast, this is the hundredth episode, and we've been going since two thousand. I think it was December two thousand and eleven that I managed to finally get something online and people could listen to it. Um. And really the aims of the show, I'll just go through the aims of the show because this is what it's all about. We record interesting people telling interesting personal stories about their involvement in aviation. The recording is mostly Kiwi content. Of course, we now have the Wings Over Australia section, which will be rolling out for the next few months as well until that runs out. But uh, it's mostly Kiwi content. And when it's not Kiwi content, we try and put some... Kiwi connections in there as well because this is this is Wings Over New Zealand. So um, we're um, archiving the history for the future generations, which I think is pretty important, and making these uh, recordings available to the public free through the podcast, so that they can be spread widely and people can listen and learn and be entertained. Hopefully, um, another aim of of the podcast is to allow the stories to be told in a way that's not limited by time or by word space so the fullest version of the story can be told uh you know when when you go and interview somebody for a magazine grant the magazine will tell you you've got you know mm-hmm. six, 600 words or or yeah, if you're lucky 1200 yeah and that's a that's not many words even 1200 is not many words you can't fit somebody's life story in aviation into, into something like that and you can't even really do it you know, we we struggle on the on the live show because we have fifty minutes, and you know you have fifty minutes with the news and a bit of other stuff, and then you try and put somebody's story in there. Even that is a bit too short. So that's one of the aims of the podcast is we let them talk until they're finished. Yeah, they tell tell the whole story, and and that's that's the beauty of it, isn't it? And it's the same with your podcast, um, PCU, yeah. um, playing crazy down under. You know, you, you guys sometimes you have two or three hours, and it's worth it. Yeah. Because that's the story. Well, that's that's the good thing about podcasts is you've got it on your phone or on your computer or things like that, and you can actually pause it. And mm. most systems will remember. You go and play something else. You go and do something else. You come back and, and you go, yeah, I want to get back into that episode and fire it up and it remembers exactly where you were and off you go. So exactly. having a three-hour episode doesn't mean you have to sit doing nothing at your computer for three hours. Because you know now you can do a bit while you're doing the lawns, a bit while you wash the dishes, you know all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And and the other the other aim of the show too is it's just listening and learning. It's an education through oral history, and um, you know that's that's what this is all about. And I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the listeners out there have learned a lot through these um, 100 episodes. 
uh, because I know that I've learned a lot, and yeah. I thought I I thought I knew a bit about aviation before I started this, but my gosh, I've learned so much. Yeah, I'd agree. It's, it's incredible. I, I've learned a lot about Kiwi aviation. I thought I knew a little bit about it, but uh, mm. yeah, no, it's been great. It's been great. Yeah. Well, here's a few stats um, we can just run through. Now, in, the, in these first 99 episodes, uh, we've had 153 different people appear on the show. <laughs> And some of them have been on, you know, multiple times. So Ooh. that's 153 individuals. Several of them have appeared, you know, uh, in series like Noel Cruz oh, and yeah. uh, Les Marshall and stuff like that. Um, the most popular show um, so far in terms of the number of downloads has been um, Barry Nelson or Patch Nelson, the, the Skyhawk pilot. Yep. Um, it, that just went nuts. It really <laughs> went nuts. I mean, there's... It's, well over, last time I looked, and it was a while ago, it was well over 10,000 downloads. Which episode so. was that one? Um, he, he, it was just him talking about his days as a Skyhawk pilot uh, in Kiwi Red. Yep, episode 44. Ah, I knew it was somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. Okay, um, a few more stats here, which are quite interesting from the show. I went through and had a look at this, and we've had 25 World War II veterans, which I'm really surprised at. I didn't realise we got up to... Well. Yeah, um, we've had at least 30 post-war Air Force veterans... Mm-hmm. Um, we've had countless pilots, uh, at least 25 warbird pilots talking uh, in the show. Uh, and, you know, among the pilots here, we've had fighter pilots, bomber pilots, transport pilots, helicopter pilots, uh, three top dressing pioneer pilots, aero club pilots, recreational pilots, pilots who have built their own aeroplanes. Uh, we've had also air gunners, navigators, flight engineers, and wireless operators. We've had aircraft designers, we've had artists, modelers, um, enthusiasts and collectors, um, we've had warbird restorers and mechanics, we've had um, aviation museum professionals, and we've had museum volunteers, and uh, we've had historians, um, people who run associations, um, you know, aircraft associations, and We've had at least 17 authors, which is quite cool. You've squeezed a hell of a lot in, mate. (laughs) I know, I know. It's incredible. Uh, We've also covered air shows and events, and we've um, basically recorded many, many hours of history. So, you know, that's a lot. There's a lot. And I I was absolutely gobsmacked when I went through and saw what was in there. You know, I'd forgotten what was half half of the stuff that was in those 99 shows. So, uh, I mean, there's... There's not been one single interview that I've done and I've walked away afterwards without learning new things and, and gaining more knowledge and respect um, for the topics and, and the people that, yep. um, that uh, you know, have been covered. So, I mean, that's been, that's been incredible. Yeah. It's been quite a ride, actually. And you must, you must find the same thing when you're doing it as well. Oh, Grant, yeah. I, oh, look, yeah. I, I, I love... Yeah, you know, I'm I'm going into an interview going, wow, this this is impressive. This is a subject matter. Uh, these are all the questions I've got, and I've got so many different questions and so many things I want to know. And uh, I'll start and I'll have a bit of a, a chain set out, and you go in and you're, you're doing these interviews, and then something will come up and it'll totally tangent you for a while and take you off on a whole different track, and you'll learn something amazing, and then you'll you'll come back and and you'll get the answers you need, and then it's off on another tangent, and it, it's just I love it. I love following my nose and seeing what comes up. And I, yeah, I find I, I've learned so much. And now I'm doing airshow commentary as well. And uh, I've got to do some research because, you know, the, 
the way to make airshow commentary work is to have a whole like metric ton of facts in front of you yeah. about pilots, aircraft, history, variants, this particular one, all this kind of stuff, especially in the warbird world. And it's just amazing how much you can learn because I go, oh, hey, I've got this guy's going to be flying that aircraft. Well, I'll just pull back the archive and have a listen to when we first talked to him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. No, it's fantastic. I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the um, key people in getting me started on this, well, the, one of the key things was Warbird Radio, and the key person there is Matt Jolly. And uh, I spoke to Matt uh, earlier in the week. I just want to welcome Matt Jolly to the show. Hi, Matt. Well, hello, Dave. Thanks for having me on. This is a, this is sort of the turning of the tables, usually, and I'm on the other side, but uh, glad, to be, <laughs> yeah. glad, glad to be here with you. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's really great to have you on the 100th episode of the Wings Over New Zealand show because I think I've told you this before, but it was actually Warbird Radio that inspired me to uh, create the Wings Over New Zealand show in the first place because I was listening to some of your shows and I suddenly thought one day, gee, we could do that in New Zealand. <laughs> well, we could talk, we could talk to Warbird guys and veterans in New Zealand, and yeah, that's where it came from. Well, you know, these stories matter, and I don't care what side of the the world you're on they they matter because mm. it's it's some of the finest uh feats of human uh, i think engineering and of of intestinal fortitude and of of just telling the stories of truly incredible humans and that's what matters so yep. my hat's off to you our congratulations to you we're thrilled to have you on the radio station as part of the team and it's the the work that you and Grant are doing but uh, specifically you, you've been at it for so long, uh, doing it down there, but we're just thrilled to have you and Grant on the, the U.S. side of it, uh, telling your stories uh, up here, and it's, it's great to have you on. It's, it's a global family, and that's the best part about it. So, Yeah, well, thank you very much, Matt. I mean, it's, it, 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 was a, it came as a great surprise to me when you asked me, can you start playing some of my um, shows on on the network, the Warbird Radio Network, and then later on when you said, would I like to do a live show, it was even, you know, it was a huge thrill, because as I say, you know, this show came out of uh, the inspiration from your show, and so it is like a full circle, and, and as you say, it's a, we're like a global network, aren't we? we, we um, we're telling the stories to the <laughs> we world. Are. So. We are, and can you, can you imagine? I mean, just think about this. So the, uh, the station started out uh, in Georgia, in the United States, in the, in the state of Georgia, uh, it, you know, and of course it was, it was great. We started it out there after I left the, the, the news side of the house and, uh, yep. anchoring the evening news and started this Warbird talk radio station. Talk about a niche market. I mean, yeah. I don't know if it's a niche or an itch, but either way <laughs> it's, we've, we've started this and, and everything's grown out of that. And so now when you and Grant come on, literally the show is is across three continents i mean think about that the technology that that's available to us today at our fingertips it's just remarkable so yeah it's a global station we have listeners from all over the world who listen to your show which yep. you know the the tiny country of new zealand who would have you know as we say here who would have thunk <laughs> that, that you know people in china um have any interest in that but but again there, there. When you when you focus on the human element of this, uh, of of military aviation, regardless of country, regardless of of even the language that we speak, it's 
it's something that is transcendent. So people in Germany, people in Switzerland, people all across Europe, uh, people in the Middle East, people in China, there, there's something that is is resonant about a man or uh, I will just even pull the, the lens out even further and say there's something transcendent about a human and a flying machine that I think everybody's interested in at some level. We've all dreamt of flight and these stories are, are unlike anything else. Absolutely, absolutely. And boy, there's some great stories out there, isn't there? I mean, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, you sometimes get an inkling, you meet somebody and you think, oh boy, I'd love to interview them. But once they start talking and those stories come out, you just, you never know what to expect and, and you get some really incredible stuff, don't you? So you do. And, you know, I'll give you an example. We were, uh, you and I have talked about this time and time again, and I think you do a terrific job. We we never turn the microphone off. So if a guy wants to talk for eight hours, we'll find a way to record eight hours. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, this is not for everyone, but it's, it's for the people that appreciate it. So uh, our shows are typically an hour long, 55 minutes long. And, you know, is it, is it riveting uh, radio? Well, it's not according to modern production standards, per se, as riveting as the BBC or, you know, NPR here in the U.S., which does a, a great job. But it is quality storytelling. And I think that, that you have such a talent of just letting the people talk. And I, I spoke to a college uh, class the other, just yesterday, in fact. And they they wanted to know what the top three things were that I've learned about communication. And I said, one is listening, two is telling the truth, and three, uh, if you work at around Warbird Radio, then everybody knows the world's most important question. And and so that's what I gave them. And, and you are a pro at listening. And it comes across in your interviews. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I just, quite frankly, I get caught up in the stories. I'm listening, um, taking it all in, and... Uh, absolutely love it, and, and you're right that um, we never turn the microphone off. Uh, I I've done a bit of article writing in the past and things like that, and you get, you know, they you might get told put the story into 600 words. Well, it's just impossible to put some of these stories into 600 words. Uh, it's impossible to cut it down to half an hour. Um, right. And 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 you really you really have to just let them tell the entire story, and that's the beauty of what a podcast is. That and there's the difference between the radio show on Warbird Radio that we do, Wings Over New Zealand live show, uh, and then there's the podcast where we don't have the time constraint. Sure. Uh, so we can let we can let them talk for an hour and a half or two hours. I think one of the I think the longest episode uh, I've actually put out was just over three hours, which was a recent one uh, covering an event. So you know there's lots of people talking telling stories um, but, <laughs> but you can you can you can you can you know with a podcast you can keep coming back to it you don't have to listen to it all in one hit so, right you know that's that's another beauty and and isn't the internet a wonderful thing we're talking through the internet right now uh you and i as we record this and it's going out through the internet um we've we've made friends all around the world through the internet and through through the show through the technology that's available to us it's fantastic it truly is you know, and, and something that I, I get asked this a lot. They're like, aren't, aren't you concerned that, you know, you're not just running an aviation station, that, that you've limited Warbird Radio to, quote-unquote, military aviation? And he, here's the answer to that, and I think you've probably experienced this too. So, again, congratulations on your 100th episode. I, I'm in, uh, I, I grew up 
in South Texas, and I'm I'm home right now on my my little island that I uh, I've called home. My parents have called home for for quite a while, and there's a there's a town not very far from here, and it, within the town, the town has twenty five thousand people, so it's a it's a relatively small town. It's it, it, from a uh, there's there's not a lot of industry down there. The biggest industry is the King Ranch, which is the world's largest working ranch. But I, I, I hosted the air show there, and and it's really a homecoming for me. It's at NAS Kingsville, which is the the jet training center for the Navy. So all of the naval aviators who will go on to fly fighter jets, fifty percent of them train there at, at NAS Kingsville. The other fifty percent train at a base in another state up in, and so the the town of 25,000 people if you will hosted a pep rally now i've never i've never emceed a pep rally for an air show and like everything in texas it starts at a football stadium and an, in a rodeo arena and we literally packed a football a college football stadium Avelina stadium which is part of texas a&m's uh, university system, uh, so Texas A&M, Kingsville, Havelina Stadium, 8,000 screaming fans, and about 150 cheerleaders. The Army had a, a howitzer cannon that they fired after the uh, one of three <laughs> three bands that showed up, uh, and by bands I mean high school marching bands showed up. Right, right, yep. Um, Friday morning at 9 a.m. and so as the Black Daggers, the special operations team is coming down. The cannon fires and, you know, we had flyovers and all that. And then that night we packed the stadium or not the stadium, but the the uh, the Coliseum where the, the rodeo is held. And there's a very famous country and Western singer from the United States by the name of George Strait. And uh, George Strait got his start in this uh, this arena. And so there I am with 2000 people excited for the air show and they wanted to meet the blue angels and all of the air show performers. So yep. here's this small Texas town of 25,000 people that hosted a pep rally. And then we had a rehearsal show. And then that night, uh, 2000 people came out just to meet the performers. So wow. Saturday morning, the day of the, the first performance of the show, there's like between 50 and 60,000 people that <laughs> showed up to the base. Wow. So Sunday, the same thing. So when people say, well, gee, that's kind of a small niche market, when you can, you know, literally more than double the population of a small Texas town for a weekend to tell, yeah. the, to literally tell the stories of military aviators through an air show. Look, the Wings Over New Zealand show, Warbird Radio, there are plenty of listeners when you expand the scope and you realize, well, our audience is global and it's yep. not just a small South Texas town, you know, now granted that's the biggest entertainment <laughs> component that, <laughs> that comes to the town every two years. But yeah, but yeah. that aside it's still, I mean, people want to know about this stuff. And so I think that's why you've been so successful celebrating a hundred episodes. It's just terrific. So congratulations. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, and and along the way too, of course, uh, with the with the podcast um, over the hundred episodes, some of those episodes haven't been military focused. We've had a few um, uh, top dressing pilots, who you know the, the agricultural pilots that um, 
fly to the limits doing the low-level flying, dropping uh, superphosphate. We've had uh, a few civil pilots and home builders, people like that as well. Um, I love how so, you call so, it top dressing. So a friend of mine yeah. from that I've, that I've grown up with, childhood friend, just bought the old family airstrip. And I was yeah. just there today, uh, crop duster pilot. And had a wonderful shirt for his for his kid, and it's uh, his son Harvey. And he says, uh, "It says my dad flies lower than yours," and it shows uh, a <laughs> you know <laughs> the, the the crop duster you know down in the down yeah. in the weeds. And I thought, what a great shirt! But uh, that's great. I, and that's a that's another class of aviation all its own. And yeah, and, and it's elite. I mean, that's those pilots are they are the best. You know, those guys. Oh, they are. And and my friend yeah. is truly one of the greats. I mean, he really yeah. is a family of of crop duster pilots. And I, I don't think there's anything more grassroots, pardon the pun, than that. I mean, that is truly, uh, I mean, now granted, the technology is there. But, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You, you have a, a wide variety of, you know, of, of, of subject matters. So Yeah, yeah, but what I was going to say sure. is it's actually, it's actually interesting. When I've done market research, when I've talked to people, it is the actual the stories of the the warbirds and um, museum aircraft and uh, the you know like military museum aircraft and of the veterans and the war stories that's the that's the things that everybody says that they're most interested in so that's the that's the path I've really taken it and that's why you know on on warbird radio that's all we talk about um, with the show because that's the theme of the the station but uh, well we've had a variety of guests over the years I mean hmm. you know and and there's <laughs> we we can figure out if if someone really wants to come on. There's always a way to bend it into. I mean, one yeah. of the one of the best I think was how we uh, we had the the character, the, the actress who played Marianne on Gilligan's Island, which was a very popular right. television show here in the, you know, <laughs> so around the world. A it's number, very popular a number of years ago, but uh, yeah, Marianne came on the show and. Who's not in love with Marianne, you know? And so uh, uh, the backstory was I went on a three-hour, I'm not kidding you, Dave, a three-hour tour with Marianne uh, of the Pentagon. Wow. And and so it was Marianne, myself, and my bride, and, and another, uh, uh, there was a, another gentleman there with us, and we, we, we went through the entire Pentagon. And, I mean, you've never seen so many people come out of their office uh, to to meet someone, you know, when they found that Marianne was there, and I looked at my watch, and I and I said, her name is Dawn Wells, and I said, Miss Wells, I, I I can't help but notice the time, and I said, do you know how long we've been here? And she looked at me and very puzzled, and said, well, no, and I said, we've been here three hours. It's been a three hour tour, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> she sort of laughed because if you know the theme song, it's. Uh, you know, they were on a three-hour tour when they got oh, caught right. on the uh, the island. So, pardon my yeah, yeah. bit of TV trivia there, but uh, yeah. So, so we had her on the show, and she, you know, she pitched her cookbook that she had just had, had released. I don't even remember how we, I don't even remember how we bent it around, but nonetheless, we've had, of course, the guy from uh, Chips that that uh, played the act, you know, the the cop show from L.A. back in the seventies. Oh, yep. yep. Great piece of Americana uh, television. We had him on. Uh, so yeah, there, there's always a way to, uh, to bend some, some story out of it, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. he owned well, a, right. he owned a Ryan Navion, which is an aircraft that they flew in the Korean war. So that's how we had him on. 
I, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Matt, and ask you, um, have you got any favourites from the Wings Over New Zealand show? What, what have been the, the shows that have stood out for you? The shows that stand out to me the most, I, I, there are a few. Um, yeah. I, I really prefer, I, I think, thinking back over your archive, and of course I'm, I'm biased, obviously, to the ones that, uh, that, that you and Grant host for our station, but, but the ones that stand out to me are the ones when you get, and, and I'm going to cover the blanket here of yep. them, but I really love the stories when, when you take the microphone to your symposiums right? and you open right. it up to your guest because hearing the questions that come from the audience and, and hearing the, the spirited discussions <laughs> that, that yeah. come from that, I think it brings a, a sense of community and, and, that's why we started Warbird Radio was because there's this great community of, of fans and of enthusiasts out there. They don't have a voice and they don't have a way to ask these questions. And, you know, arguably you and I have access to people that, that a lot of folks would really enjoy having a moment to ask a question uh, themselves to. And I think you bring that to people yeah. who normally wouldn't get it. So those are by far my favorite episodes. And I know there's a bunch of those out there, or a couple of them at least here in recent history. But those yeah, really uh, those stand out to me. The, the, absolutely. That, that's actually it's something that almost came about by accident, those forum meets that we have, which um, we, we now end up seem to have a couple a year and uh, around different parts of the country. Um, with, with the forum itself, of course, the, the show also came from the forum. Uh, the discussion forum, and so there's a there's a, a big network of people across the country, and and through those forum meets, we've got to meet each other in in person rather than just online. And you know, I've made so many real friends through it. You know, not just internet friends, but real friends through that. And you're right that um, I soon realised when we started doing that, getting together and having these these days have people present stuff that the average person only gets to read stuff in magazines or online or they might get to see a DVD from an air show but they don't get to meet the, those um, key people in person and ask them questions and, and so that's why they've become so popular because they do get that opportunity and they um, and in particular I, I, I soon worked out that there's not a lot of opportunities for people to go and meet World War II veterans anymore um, and so I've and I think since 2011, every one of them, I've tried to make sure that there's some World War II veterans to come along and give a bit of a talk. And then, you know, what you don't hear in the podcast is afterwards, when we're having a lunch or whatever, you know, they those guys get swamped by people all going up, shaking their hands, um, you know, wanting to meet the veterans and, and just have little chats with them. And, you know, it's really, really wonderful that... Um, there's this this opportunity that they wouldn't get, and that the veterans themselves they love it. Uh, they love the opportunity to be able to meet people who appreciate what they did and and want to know about it. Absolutely. Well, again, you you have more much more important people to talk to on this episode, so by all means, get with it. But uh, thank you for including <laughs> us, and and I want you to know that we are thrilled to have you and Grant on uh, on Warbird Radio. And uh, we look forward to rolling over the 100th uh, episode on on uh, on our station because the, the live show is important. And uh, we have a few more to go before we get there. But yeah. uh, we look forward to that. Zane and uh, Hartman and 
and Mike, uh, every everybody everybody down there enjoys enjoys the programming. So it, it's, we we look forward really to having you at Oshkosh because that is uh, one of the most I think uh, memorable experiences anyone can have in aviation. Is it's it it is the Super Bowl. It's the probably one of the most you know hallowed ground uh, sites of aviation uh, that anyone can come to, and it's just a it's. So enjoyable. So I look forward to having you there at some point. Just just to translate for our New Zealand listeners, that's that's like the Rugby World Cup final. <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. Speak New Zealand, Dave. Please, speak New Zealand. <laughs> but no, I mean, that would, be, that would be the ultimate dream to get there. And I mean... Like last year, you had the whole team from Warbed Radio there. Apart, oh from yeah, the whole the whole you team is there. Yeah, from all the shows apart from apart from me and Grant, and uh, we were like, oh boy, that would be so good to get there and actually do wings over Oshkosh. That would be. I'm just... telling you, you have to come, and and yeah. and you and Grant should come and bring Bevan and the whole crew. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely. See if 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 Bevan were to marry. Uh, we were think we should think about this because then we could create a super warbird alliance. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, like... the the Hintons I don't think have another. I'm I'm not sure they they would need a. Well, anyway, we'll come up with something. But uh, yeah, this is like Game of Thrones that you. I'm telling about. you, this could be huge. <laughs> <laughs> we're counting well, on thanks. you. We're counting on you, Bevan. <laughs> so, yeah, but we all we all need to get together though. That would be a lot of fun, and of course, it's it all comes back to the community, and that's what you're building, and it's uh, it's truly wonderful. So, congratulations. Thank you very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm I'm really glad that you've uh, been able to take the time to be here. Great, Dave. Thank you. Cheers. Well, I'm really pleased that Matt uh, be on the show because he's such a great guy and I really enjoy working with him on Warbird Radio. He's great, isn't he, Grant? Oh, he's a lot of fun. And, I mean, yes. you, you know, anyone who's heard Warbird Radio, either on the podcast or on the live feed, you, you've heard a lot of stuff, but you haven't heard what went on in the green room before we went live. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's manic. It's great. I love it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really, like as Matt said, it, uh, and he says to me all the time, he keeps saying on the live show, he keeps saying when we're not live, uh, he, I'd love to get to Oshkosh with those guys because, yeah. you know, they, they um, pretty much all of the Warbird radio um, presenters all go along to Oshkosh and they all have a massive blast there. Oh, yeah. You know, they set up, set up as a camper van that's all set up as a studio and, um, you know, record and broadcast and, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, It'd just be great. Look, I've seen the air. I, I was at Oshkosh in 2011, and uh, we we were in um, in Camp Shola, which is just outside the gates, and uh, we were staying in uh, what's now known as Camp Bacon, which is where a whole lot of the the podcasters and the online aviation crew and everyone you know the tweeters and the fa- uh, Facebookers and all that. And there's multiple uh, mobile homes. There's tents. There's everything. We take guys go in early and stake out a huge area and, and yep. we fill it we fill it and uh yeah that was pretty intense and uh steve and i were spending each night until about one in the morning churning out content and and uh doing parties and catching up with people and recording stuff and all this kind of thing uh, and then matt's doing the same kind of thing but he's doing it in the warbird area they're, they're, they're camping 
pretty much right next to Warbirds. I think I remember seeing that area. I, when I was at Oshkosh, I was gobsmacked. There was a field full of Harvards. It was, it was like you know being in New Zealand at the end of the time, just before they uh, sent all the Harvards, sold them and scrapped them and everything. There was this field full of them. It was like, right. wow, look at all these Harvards. And then there were, there were Nanchangs and Yaks everywhere and then chipmunks and, and, and a, a field full of um, like P-51s. There was something like about seven, maybe ten P-51s just in the one field. And one of the guys are like, wow, look at all these P-51s. And one of the guys goes, oh, yeah, 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 but there should be another ten or so coming later. <laughs> it's like, okay, Corsair and, you know, Tiger Cat and, and uh, just P-40s and, and all sorts of amazing stuff. And, yeah, it's, it's an incredible experience, and, and we've really got to get you over there, man. Yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd really love to. And, you know, if nothing else, just to meet up with Matt and the guys, you know, yeah. Chris Henry and, uh, um, you know, Hartman and uh, Hines and, you know, <laughs> and all Bill. those guys. Zane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, Zane and uh, and Mike Tilson and people like that. You know, they're all great guys. And I, I love their shows and, and I just, oh, boy, it'd be good. But anyway, let's, <laughs> let's get back to this show. <laughs> Yeah, no, we we can dream. That's for the future, man. That's that's in the next hundred. We'll get you there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, um, you know, one thing I was going to say is sometimes with the Wings of New Zealand show, it leads to things that are completely unexpected. And one little story I just wanted to cover that it's one of my uh, one of the episodes I'm most proud of is uh, episode sixty two, which was the seventieth anniversary commemoration of the Armion prison raid in France where the um, mosquitoes and typhoons um, raided the the German-held prison in the French village yep. of Amiens um, and bombed the walls and let the prisoners out. Um, what actually happened with that, and a lot of people probably don't know this, but every year for years and years at uh, RAF Hunsdon, the... Uh, the, the locals there have ha- held a ceremony at, at the um, at, at the at the airfield um, to commemorate because that's where the the, the mosquitoes took off from. So, um, what was, what happened was I, I used to see this the photos come up on 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 the internet um, from that, and I got in contact with uh, Dennis Sharp, who was one of the locals who um, who ran that, and I said to him, "Are you guys going to do the?" Um, the ceremony this year for the 70th because it'd be really great if we could record something from that for the Wings Over New Zealand show and he's like oh yeah 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 and then this is ages before and then when it goes getting closer to it uh, here in New Zealand um, I was approached by Jenny Boone who I, I knew previously because her uncle sorry two of her uncles were uh, Cambridge Airmen and they're on my website and she'd helped me out with information and one of those uncles was killed on that raid Dick Sampson okay. now he flew with uh, not the New Zealand squadron. He flew with the other squadron, which was four six four, I think, was it Australian squadron? Yeah. Um, and good. yeah, and he um, yeah, he got he was one of the three men that were killed on the raid. There was him. Uh, sorry, four men. There was there was him, uh, Group Captain Picard, and his navigator, and one of the Typhoon pilots were killed. She said to me, "Look, um, it's the seventieth anniversary of." Uh, Dick's death. She lives down near Wanganui, and she wanted to come up to Cambridge, and she invited me to just meet with her husband, 
uh, and her at the cenotaph, and we just have a bit of a special moment um, to remember Dick. And I thought that was great. And then I said this to um, to Dennis and said that we're going to have a bit of a small ceremony here. And uh, he said, oh, we're not going to be doing it. They've, they've decided not to do it over in England. And I said, like, really? I couldn't believe that. And then Jenny came back to me and she said, hey, look, if we're going to do this, why don't we do it right? We'll get the RSA involved and we'll just invite anyone who wants to come along and we'll we'll say a few words publicly. And I was like, well, okay. And so it turned out that you know, out of nothing, a ceremony here in Cambridge for Dick started to come together. And when I told Dennis about this, he got all fired up and decided he was going to go and shake some trees. And <laughs> and, and he actually convinced the locals to change their minds. And so they held the ceremony again. Now, he went and bought a recorder so he could record this for us. He recorded all of the, the ceremonies and speeches and stuff. Um, and also he put me on to... Uh, he put me on to uh, his friend Tom Allett that was uh, going to France, and he was going to be at Armion at the same time. Oh, wow. Of course, the timing is, you know, within hours, but it, it was all within the space of 24 hours. Yeah. We'd be having a ceremony here in Cambridge, and then the, there was the English ceremony, and then there was the, the there was Tom. Yeah, who, he was going to be with uh, Pierre Ben, who was good friends with Jenny Boone. Oh, wow. And, uh, and with Dr. Jean-Pierre Dusselier, who had written a book about the raid. And um, they, were, they were visiting the graves and they were visiting um, the, the crash sites and they were visiting the, the prison walls and things like that. And so he convinced Tom to record stuff as well. Yes. Now, now, so we got, this is the first show um, for the Wings of New Zealand show that went international because we had three countries recording yeah. the ceremony and and the ceremony in England only happened because of the show <laughs> and and then basically because of what was happening in England that got Jenny more fired up and we we ended up with a whole lot of veterans turn up um we had this is in Cambridge we had uh, the newspaper turn up and it was a really nice little ceremony and it just went so well uh and in England they had a massive turnout and they even had a hurricane do a display oh, and geez. It just went perfectly. So, um, yeah, no, I, I'm really, really proud of that episode and, and what it what it achieved, and I hope maybe we can do it again for the 75th. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, you know, it's, it's always it's important to commemorate things like this, and uh, I, I, I was involved in the 75th anniversary of the IVA forced landing at Albury, a DC-2 involved in the MacArthur-Robinson race, uh, yep. sorry, MacArthur-Robinson race from uh, London to uh, Melbourne, and uh, they got uh, caught in bad weather and, and landed at Albury and the town came out to help them out, uh, all this kind of stuff. And so we, on the 75th anniversary, we reenacted it with a DC-3. But, uh, yeah, there were all sorts of dignitaries showed up. And it, it, it's amazing, just a little bit of effort and you can get a ball rolling and, and away you go with these kind of things. So to do it in three countries on the same day, that's fantastic, man. And... Yeah, you caught it all in episode 62. Well done. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's one of those episodes that what's mentioned in it, you know, you don't have to listen to it at the time. Like, if you've missed it, if you haven't listened to it, you can still go back and listen to it now, and it's it's just as meaningful mm-hmm. now, a couple of years later, than it was then. So, you know, that's and that's a piece of history right there that, that uh, yep. you know, there's, there's 
I don't know, there's there's a few um, World War Two veterans speaking and stuff like that. That's just worth it. Mm. Have, a, have a listen. To, have a listen if you haven't. So. Yeah. Well, even if you have uh, listened to it, it's probably been about forty episodes. So get back there and listen again. <laughs> mm, well, that's, that's true too. And I've actually seriously been considering loading it up and ha- having another another listen myself. So, but <laughs> um, I don't normally do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I won't play any clips from that one, but we're going to have some clips coming up uh, in the show from past ones because uh, we've got some great. Uh, great moments in the show and some and some great people and great stories and uh, I, I put the word around a few people and said what are your favorite stories and what what are your um you know t- just give me give me some clues of what what clips you want to hear and quite a few of them um came back and said uh some of them said you know oh, we've got to have something from noel <laughs> and so yeah of course noel Cruz is in there um uh, but, but which one? You know, yeah, that's the thing. You know, there's about I don't know, twelve or thirteen episodes to choose from, and each one's about an hour. So it, that's it's been difficult. But I I decided there's a few other people mentioned it too, but I decided to go with one of my favourite stories, and that's uh, that's his um, what would you say, what would you call it? Uh, caribou crash. And we deployed three caribous, and we flew up to Townsville, and we dovetailed this with a, one of the Air Force um, air shows in Townsville. And Stu McAllister, who was the glorious instructor, nominated me as his co-pilot for the air show. And we actually flew in the air show and did a, a LAPES demonstration in front of the crowd. That was fun. And then we packed up the next day and flew to Port Moresby and then we were briefed on the flights. We're going to, and all three airplanes were going to follow each other around the place. Um, and each airplane had two students and an instructor on board, right? So it's six students and three instructors. All cool. And on day one... We headed off uh, from Moresby down to the east, along the south coast to the east, along what were reasonably flat, ordinary sort of fields, but just to get used to the higher density altitude operations of this aeroplane, you know, the fact that and a bit heavier loaded, the fact you've got to anticipate because they didn't flare too well with the forward seat, all the little things. And the deal was that the instructor would sit in the right-hand seat and each student would alternately sit in the left seat, okay? Yeah. And the other student would then stand between the seats because you had these radio racks behind you could sort of put your feet on those and stand up and and hang on and see what was going on. And en route then, the guy in the pilot seat, the student, would navigate, right, because the flying was easy, apart from just steering it, but then approaching the airfield, the role would change and then the student hand over the maps and he would take control and then he would be instructed on how to land in these little airfields. This was the deal. And then we would swap. I can't remember, I think we'd done two or three uh, where I I navigated slash landed and then the next guy navigated slash landed, but um, it was approaching lunchtime and we are going into an airfield called Tufi, which was the first sloping airfield. It had about a, not not too serious, only about a 5 or 6% slope. There was about 2,000 feet of grass, not huge, but for a light aircraft, no big deal, and for a caribou, no big deal. I I subsequently learned. And uh, it was on a headland, uh, right on the beach. It ran 90 degrees to the beach. You actually approached over the water, and the threshold was at the, the sand. Right? And it was lovely. The whole real estate there was absolutely beautiful. The guy who I was, I'm standing between the seats, watching all of this going on, right? And the guy in the left seat was having a little bit of difficulty pinpointing which of these little headlands the airfield was on. 
Now, there was on one of th about four of these little headlands with little bays in between. And instructor, being a glorious, being a flying instructor, was raiding. Come on, come on, what do, you, what do you mean you can't figure it out? And getting him a bit flustered. So finally, he made the, the student made the decision. Oh, it's on that headland there. It's over there. Right. Let's start the descent. So now he hands over. And part of the procedures of a caribou, you have these descent approach checks that you do before you start descending. And then on your downwind leg, you've got the downwind checks. And on base leg, you've got a couple of other things to do. You know, get the props up and all that sort of stuff. Because you know, also. We got behind in those. So the descent approach checks weren't done until we're on the downwind leg, and the downwind checks weren't done to a turning base. And at this point, uh, our glorious instructor says, I'll oh, taking over, you're getting a bit behind it. And also, this is your first sloping strip, so I'll demonstrate how it's done. Famous last words. Because we're also planning to stop at two feet. There's a wonderful place, sit on the beach and have our box lunches, right? So we're going to cancel our SAR watch on the HF with Port Moresby. So here, he suddenly realised he hasn't done this. He should have done this before we hit the, the circuit. So we're turning finals, and he's onto the HF radio to Port Moresby, and whatever our call sign was, cancel SAR. What? Say again? Cancel SAR. So we're coming down finals. The aeroplane's slowed. He's in the stall configuration. We're aiming at this little grass strip, and I'm saying, well, this is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But he's talking on the radio. And this is the classic case of being distracted. I saw in the news just tonight the number of people who crash on the roads because they're talking on the mobile phone. This is before mobile phones and it happened again. He flared, touched down, and of course with a caribou, I, I should mention this before, to get the engines into reverse, you close the throttle, the, the throttles hang from the roof. So you close the throttles, the engines spool down. You then push the throttle handle straight up into the roof. In fact, they move up about two or three inches. Clunk. This engages two electrical switches which drive the propellers to reverse pitch and two little blue lights come on in front of the pilot. Then and only then you pull the, the throttles back and you get full power with the propellers in reverse pitch. So you've got to go land, push, get two blues, reverse. So one, two, three process. One, two, three. He goes one, closes the throttle, two, punches them up to reverse and three, hits the transmit button to acknowledge the final call from Port Moresby. Something in his brain got sidetracked and he thought he'd done the three actions, despite the fact that it wasn't the normal roaring noise of two Pratt & Whitney R2000s <laughs> developing 1,400 horsepower in reverse. <laughs> we are now about a third of the way up the runway, the sloping strip, and I'm just standing there watching this. I, re I recognise the fact that he hasn't pulled them back and I'm thinking, He's doing this deliberately. He's trying to prove something. He's trying to prove how good this aeroplane is by stopping it at the last minute or something like that. Yeah. And he's still talking on the radio. And then the loadmaster, who's down the back looking out the side window, says uh, the wheels are locked. Which means subconsciously he's hitting the brakes, realising that the fence is coming up, but it's not getting through to the conscious part of his brain. So he's now locked the wheels and they're sliding on this wet grass. And about then I realised, I don't give a stuff how good this caribou is, we're not going to stop. We're about, oh no, approaching two-thirds of the way up the strip. And I thought, we're not going to stop. By now it's starting to filter through. I could have, I suppose, because these throttles are up. I could have actually grabbed them and pulled them back, but you just don't do that. I'm not part of the flying crew, you know. And by, even if I had at that stage, I, I had this feeling it wasn't going to work anyway. And it was almost like, at this stage, the brain goes into hyperdrive, and it seemed like I had slow motion. I stepped down from my perch between the seats, I turned around and I eyeballed the tail cone of the aeroplane and thought, can I make it down to the tail cone before we hit that fence? No, we can't. I'm not going to make it. 
So I lay down on the floor. Now there's a little four inch step between the main cargo floor and up to the cockpit floor. And I lay down and hook my heels against that and grab the stanchions which hold up the seats either side. Now there's four other guys there, just hangers on. A couple of troops and all the rest of it. And they're all looking at me like I'm lying on the floor between their feet. And they're looking at me like, what are you doing down there? And now I'm now gazing up through the cockpit door, up through the cockpit roof, because they've got a bubble canopy type arrangement with the covers back. So I'm seeing everything. As I say, this felt like it took, ten, or took as long as it took me to say it. It was probably only microseconds, because as I'm lying down looking up through there, I'm conscious of these faces, I hear, SHIT! ROAR! <laughs> as he realises that he hasn't pulled on the power. So he screams out shit and rams these engines into full reverse and gets them spooled up to full reverse just in time for them to hit the fence. And somewhere in there he says, we got a prank! And there's this almighty bang! And I see the left-hand propeller with the gearbox heading off, I'm looking up through, the, heading off into the jungle like a helicopter thinking, oh, that's curious. <laughs> And I knew there's a, there's a hill at the end, and this fence, of course, is not just your ordinary little local suburban fence you see around here. It was made of tree stumps and logs. Yeah. Each, each of the verticals was a whole part tree, and then these huge logs across the top. It was a massive fence. And, of course, the, the strip sloped up this 12 degrees up to, a, <clears throat> I don't know, 10 or 15 feet above a little gully, a gully, which was a sweet potato field, actually. And we fell down into that. So the nose pitched down, and I had no idea what was off the end. I'm thinking, oh, my God, here we go, we're all dead. And wham! And the whole thing just stopped with this hissing noise. <laughs> and of course, by now, of course, the uh, the loadmaster who was also on the headset, and I was on the headset, but the other four guys weren't. The loadmaster was aware. He heard that we're going to crash. He he reacted immediately, ran down the back and blew the or banged the side door open. Um, and as I'm starting to get up, I get trodden to death by the other four guys who, who trample all over me. So I'm getting up for the second time and the, and the student is now out of the left seat and he tramples me down. I, at this stage I'm completely uninjured from the crash but I, I've got shed marks all over me. And I start to laugh. I'm lying there laughing because by now the airplane hasn't blown up. It's just stopped. And and I'm hearing Stu on the, on the radio, which is still working, because the batteries were still working. Uh, Moresby, this is whatever I call something. Yep, yeah, uh, can we resurrect our Sarwatch? Yeah, Sarwatch is resurrected. Thank you. Mayday, mayday, mayday. We just crashed. And I'm lying on the floor, pissing myself, laughing. And he looks around and says, what are you still doing here? And oh, I said, well, it's a bit late to do anything now, mate. <laughs> so I sort of ambled up to the cockpit and just looked at him. And he looked at me. And he said, you know when that happened, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, fairly obvious. He said, man, is there a lesson here? <laughs> that was his busy words. So that was great, wasn't it, Grant? I mean, oh, hell yeah. what a story. And I tell you what, that story goes on and on. If you go back to that episode, uh, you'll um, you'll hear a lot more because he was involved in the recovery of that aircraft as well. And you know, if you if you've never if you've never actually sat down and listened to Noel Cruz, well, that's just one little ex- example of. <laughs> How good his uh, all of his shows are! They're, they're brilliant, and you know if you if you like being entertained while you learn, that's the way to do it. Yep. Uh, yeah, I've got to say, I got to say the the series that you're doing uh, with Noel is just been fantastic. Uh, yeah. Really enjoyed it, and he gets right into it. He doesn't hold back, and he he's really enjoying it too. And yep. some very moving parts as well. I know 
some of the uh, episodes where he's recounting stories of other people and things like that, it was like, wow, it was really poignant, really intense. And, and this yeah. one of the crash, just, you know, that propeller coming through the fuse, just, whoa, that was intense. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know what? He does all of that from his memory too. Yeah, yeah. He, he, I've never seen him write notes. He, all he does is he sits down with me. He'll talk a, a little bit briefly about what he's going to say, and he might occasionally, on, on about three occasions, I've seen him pick up his logbook and just check the order of stuff, and then it just flows out. Oh. And, and, he, and he always says, we'll just give you half an hour, and, and then <laughs> it'll be like an hour or, or an hour and ten minutes. And just, <laughs> Yeah. And I'm just sitting there, I'm sitting there just listening and hardly saying a word, hardly having to ask a question because it just comes out just flows. perfect. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, it's been great. No, I love this little one about the Ryan that he um, restored, rescued, restored, and all that, and he's flying at Hamilton now. Because I was thinking about that the other day. We uh, at the Tyre Air Show, we had four different Ryans flying in formation: um, STA, STM, a PT11, I think it was. And, um, yeah, an SCM, the cabin cruiser one. And, yeah, four Ryans flying. I was like, oh, Noel would love to see this. <laughs> yeah. And Noel's actually moved now. He's no, no longer here in Cambridge. He's gone down to Omaka and taken his Ryan and his Pit Special and his uh, his other little aircraft, which uh, is called Rosebud. Uh, they've all <laughs> gone down to Omaka. So. Oh, he's taken his bat and ball and gone there. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's obviously loving life down there, though, in the Marlborough yeah. Sounds. And, um, yeah, good on them. Yeah. Now, we've actually had a few clips sent in from uh, from people who want to congratulate the Wings Over New Zealand show on reaching 100. So let's have a let's have a listen to one of those, shall we? Why not? Hello, this is Peter Johnson from Aviation Extended. Tim Garrison, myself, wish Dave a very happy 100th episode, and are delighted he's reached this milestone. Personally, I'm a listener to every show. I really enjoy the relaxed style of interviews. I did wonder what I'd like about an aviation show from New Zealand, but how wrong I've been proved. It's such an active environment. Just a visit to the forums will show you how passionate everyone is about aviation in New Zealand. Literally tens of thousands of posts and threads. So, my favourite episodes are the Peter Tremaine two-parters, quite recent ones. I've also really enjoyed hearing the older British pilots who moved down under but recalled their wartime exploits. These could well have been the sort of interviews I would love to have done for Extended. So, thanks Dave for recording these very precious memories. So, here's to another 100 episodes and we're really grateful to Dave and the team for producing such great content. The next clip coming up is uh, one of my favourite shows. It's um, uh, for me. I don't know. It was just. It was a really neat show. I just really enjoyed making it, and uh, mainly because it was the first show I did that was inside an aircraft, and uh, where we did the recording and. This is the Avro Lancaster that's at Motat. And uh, I was up in the cockpit sitting there with Peter Wheeler, uh, John Wilding and Phil Furter, who are all guys that are uh, involved with uh, the restoration. They were involved with the restoration of the aircraft and now they maintain it and look after it and um, keep the stories alive as well. And uh, we'll take up this bit of the story here with Phil Furner. 
And I think for you, Phil, it's a, it pretty much is your iconic aircraft, isn't it? Oh, well and truly. Um, as I say, I've, I've, I've sort of had an association with it since I was three. Uh, literally fell in love with the sight of it um, all those years ago. Um, and I've also uh, had the privilege of having flown in one uh, in Canada. Um, it's the only well, one of only two flying, and uh, it's the only one you can actually take passenger flights in. Um, I was lucky enough, uh, my dad being a, a Lancaster veteran, uh, for his 80th birthday, I took him up to Canada, and we both flew in it together. And uh, wow. yeah, we, we'd worked it out. It was 60 years and 23 days since he'd last operationally flown in one. Wow. Um, so yeah, um, albeit he got badly wounded, but it was quite an emotional flight for him. So. Yeah, but I've, um, that's that's a memory that I'll I'll have and cherish forever. That uh, having flown with my my dad in a Lancaster bomber. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you've visited most of the Lancasters around the world. Do yes, you? I've I've been lucky enough. I've made a lot of good friends. Uh, having worked on this one, I've made a lot of good contacts. And uh, yeah, I've uh, I've visited most of the surviving Lancasters in the world. So Great. yeah, I feel very privileged to have done so. Now this one was a Mark 7 you said, it's been yes. um, backdated back to a wartime uh, standard of Mark 3? Mark 3, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it was basically decided we wanted a representative World War II Lancaster, um, so um, we we decided that uh, we'd obtained a, uh, a uh, an FN-50 mid-upper turret um, when the aircraft arrived, so uh, that was the, uh, the true turret for that mark of aircraft. So um, it was decided that it should be fitted. Uh, we were very lucky that uh, the um, chief structural engineer in the country who worked for New Zealand at the time, Richard Leeper, um, we got in contact with him and he was more than happy to assist us. Uh, and he and his team uh, came out from New Zealand and uh, installed the turret and all the structure, uh, two proper uh, aircraft uh, spec. So uh, no, we were very lucky with that. Fantastic. Yeah. And, um, you know, and putting it back to the wartime standard um, from the post-war French, mm. you must have had to f track down and find a lot more parts. Yes, um, <laughs> again, good old John Barton, he had fingers in lots of pies. Um, a lot of the um, parts that we, we couldn't either uh, manufacture ourselves from original plans, uh, we were able to source in the UK, um, and John had a friendly Air New Zealand pilot. Um, providing we could get them to the crew hotel in London, uh, he would bring them down for us. Right. Yeah, um, and uh, so yeah, we were very lucky, and uh, we've finished the aircraft off to uh, the period of September 1944, um, and um, pretty much everything that was in an aircraft of that time period is in this aircraft. So yeah, we've been we've got a, a very complete aircraft. So again, very lucky. Okay, is there any parts that are still missing um, you're looking for? Um, ideally we would like a, uh, a, a four-gun uh, 303 turret. Um, we still have the, uh, the late war um, two 0.5-inch uh, 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 guns in the rear turret, um, which wasn't on a, a turret of that uh, particular uh, time period, but uh, we're still happy to have a turret in there. So, yeah, um, unfortunately those particular turrets are rare as hen's teeth now, so uh, trying to get one, uh, yeah, one may turn up at some stage, but uh, we're not holding our breath on that. So if any listeners out there have one in their garage or fitted to their car... <laughs> We'd be happy to take it off their hands. <laughs> yes, we, 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 we could organise a swap. <laughs> How about you, Peter? What are your sort of favourite memories or favourite stories of the Lancaster? I think one thing that happens every time we have visitors um, come in, um, 
there are amazed just how small the aircraft is and mm. how tight it is. Mm. And how with a flying suit on, um, you've got hardly any room. And that if uh, the reason for such huge losses is that if you got hit, um, even air turbulence makes it awkward to get around here. I mean, just climbing through, you catch yourself and you knock yourself. Yep. With a flying suit on, trying to find a parachute, um, the G-forces, it's amazing that anyone ever got out. So that's something that, that strikes me all the time as a comment which comes up again and again by visitors aboard this aircraft. And even the veterans, they come aboard and they have some quiet time, as John said, and then they say, I can't believe it was so small. Yeah. So it's, um, that, that's just a recurring theme, um, that these mm. chaps went out in, a, in this machine, and, and that's what it is. Mm. And there's not a one s wasted space um, and and really the crew fitted around the machine mm. to yeah. operate it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah very uh, claustrophobic, I guess, in, in places. Um, as far as the, the pilots are concerned, or the crew, the other thing which, which we shouldn't forget is for every aircraft, there was a ground crew. And on the typical bomber station, there was something in the order of 2,000 support staff to look after the one or two squadrons of aircraft aboard wow. and again you talk to the pilots and the crew and they all comment about their ground crew who once they come back from an operation it was a ground crew's job to turn that aircraft around and have it ready within hours and it didn't matter the time of the day night or whatever it had to be done yeah so the air crew um, these days, you know, they do think back about the ground crews, and of course the ground crews very rarely got any recognition. Um, even with the new Bomber Command clasp, ground crews who served on Bomber Command stations will not be recognised. Um, mm, yeah, that's, so, a, that's a travesty. Yes, it Absolutely. is. Yeah. Mm. So it's, when you come to, to special stories, um, you've got, we've mentioned about John Tarbuck, most unlikely Lancaster pilot you've ever met. <laughs> and, you know, John, have you got any exciting stories? No. Did you ever get hit by flak? He said, we once got a bullet hole in the wing, and that's it. Mm. So there's a chap who did a whole tour, um, and you read, or you talk to others who have, you know, terrific, tremendous, terrible frights um, of, you know, shoveling bits of their gunner out and so mm. on. So, yeah. um, and they don't like to talk about that, and that's fair enough too. Mm. An interesting thing is only the pilot actually wore his parachute and also he was the only one who was strapped into the aircraft at all. If you look around the aircraft and all the other places where the crew sat, there are no safety harnesses or safety belts for taking off or landing and the, uh, and the uh, parachutes were actually stored inside the aircraft because there was not enough room for them to wear them and move around in the aircraft. So if they, a plane was hit over enemy territory, say, and falling out of the sky, not only would it be perhaps upside down or side on, but it would be completely dark inside because the inside of the aircraft is black for obvious reasons, and there were very few lights in here as well. So you had to get past all this equipment to the exit doors, and I'm told that less than 3% of the aircrew of an aircraft that was actually hit would actually survive and would escape from the aircraft which wow. is a very, very small uh, percentage. That's pretty scary when you think Dave, about it. Dave, you know, the only piece of armour plate in the aircraft is what you're holding. 
Oh, mm. right. Just behind the seat here. Yeah. That's it. Mm. And that's protecting the pilot's head. Mm. Um, but um, a night fighter coming up astern and firing a salvo, you can see will whistle clean up through this aircraft yeah. and would hit all of the crew. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the aluminium, no, that's not going to stop hail, let no. alone bullets. Mm. So, yeah, you know, a night fighter was a devastating thing to happen. Um, just the bits of flying metal and shrapnel, and they did. You didn't have to be hit by a bullet. You know, a, a piece of radio or a piece of structure of the aircraft mm. hitting you is just as effective. Mm. Um, yeah, a very serious thing to happen. No, I think that's really cool. It's. Uh, uh, it was a good decision to uh, take that aircraft back to a 1944 status. I mean, uh, as some may know, it was uh, donated to Australia. Sorry, it was donated to the Kiwis from the French. Uh, it was with the French Army de l'Air and it was flying around the Pacific and um, they left it in Auckland, didn't they? That's right, yeah. And the, the whole story of uh, how that came about is, is told in that episode as well as a, a lot more... Uh, about its restoration and about its current uh, status and its care, uh, it's a really neat episode. I just, I, I just was really overwhelmed by the amazing stories, and uh, yeah, it's a, I just really loved that episode. So it's one of my favourites. Yep, the uh, I do recall seeing that just before I left New Zealand back in, I would have been December nineteen eighty, I think it was. Uh, it was the first time I'd seen that, and uh, we were looking at it, my father and I, uh, his friend who was able to get us through the Sunderland couldn't get us through the Lancaster. That was, that was pretty sacred, sacred ground, but um, it still had the, um, the clear perspex blister underneath the belly from, right. um, from where the uh, radar would, would be dropped down. Uh, that was, there was a radar in the belly. It was uh, probably about two thirds of the way down the aircraft and uh, bulged in the front and then teardrop at the back uh, for streamlining. And yeah, that was where the, the radar bin, was covered by that blister. Of course, I caught up with that aircraft again when I was just in Auckland a couple of years back, catching up with you. And uh, yeah, it's amazing that the modifications they've done to get it back to that 1944 look. Yeah, exactly. And uh, since we made that show, uh, the aircraft's had a bit of a transformation. It's uh, it's now gained the nose art and identity of uh, one of Number 75 Squadron's most famous aircraft, uh, the Captain's Fancy. And uh, we actually. Uh, recorded the the ceremony for when that was unveiled as well, which was a really special day, and that's another episode in the archive. So you can you can go and listen to that as well, um, and hear the story of the captain's fancy, which was an amazing aircraft in itself. Yeah, it did did quite a few missions and and chalked up quite a few uh, amazing stories in its life. Lancasters didn't do missions; they did operations. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, don't get that one wrong around the bomber command guys. <laughs> Yeah. Missions was Americana, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, never, never, never say missions. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. They were, they were either operations, operational sorties or sorties or raids, but they were never missions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's one of the things I've learned along the way on this show. <laughs> scars to prove it, right? <laughs> yeah. And it makes sense too. It makes sense. G'day everyone, Errol Kavit here from Auckland. Congrats Dave on reaching 100 shows. 
It was over four years ago that I was able to help you out in getting things started, and I was very happy to do so. A few highlights for me. Uh, Noel Cruz's stories are always interesting and well told. Jonathan Pote's episode 72 was fascinating. Bruce Cook in episode 4 was a great look at grassroots aviation. The interviews at Wings Over Wire Appa 2013 were wonderful. My favourite one there was with Bill Reed, owner and restorer of the Anson Mark 1. And I'm really looking forward to the many more shows to come from Wings Over Australia. Well done Dave, and keep on going. Now, another uh, an, another great supporter of the uh, Wings Over New Zealand forum uh, is Don Sabritsky, and uh, I did a show with him way back, and uh, him and uh, Jim Mungle uh, talking about the Hawker Hines. And uh, this is our next clip from that show. It was another great, great episode. And, and, you know, Don's a fantastic guy. And we'll hear more from him coming up fairly soon in the, in the um, Wings Over New Zealand show. I have another, another show recorded with him, and, or a couple probably. But, uh, yeah, here's Don and Jim talking about Hawker Hines and various things. And my first input into Hines, and actually what started my whole collection, where I lost control of my life, to which I, to this day, wish I'd collected stamps. Life would have been so much easier. Absolutely. I located the remains of the Hawker Hind at Havelock North that was owned by Jim Frogley. Right. And as a young lad, raced back to Auckland to tell the people at Motat, guess what, guess what, we've got. Unfortunately, at that stage, Motat, like most of the time, we were public enemy number one, and people wrote about us and about the terrible things that we were doing and the rubbish that was appearing at... Uh, Western Springs yep. and my trip back to Auckland coincided with one of these broadsides in the newspaper yep. and I was told in no uncertain terms they were not going to accept any more junk through the front gate okay. and with that in mind I sort of stood there dumbfounded, climbed back on an aeroplane and thought I'll pick it up for myself and that was the beginning of the collection. Right. To this day, we still not know the registration of that aircraft, and would like someone to step out of the woodwork and tell me. Um, I then also, through a third party, was told of some bits at the Cumu area, where I ended up to proceed uh, to pump out a large pond that I was told a hawker hind got thrown into. Right. Great. Um, exercise but unfortunately what he didn't tell me is the last thing he threw into the pond was a large tractor so the pond had to get pumped out the tractor had to get pulled out and um, significant parts of that aeroplane came out of there uh, which was quite incredible woodwork and both woodwork and metal fittings including the virtually undamaged windscreen unit complete with its mahogany blocks wow um, How long had it been in there? Probably 20 years, that's straight off the cuff, I haven't yeah. thought about that, but the amazing thing is, here we have number two Hawker Hind, no registration, and to this day, no one can tell us what Hawker Hind that is. Right. The rest of it is just bits and pieces off the beach at um, down in the uh, Wairapa, oh, I'm looking for the name now, the West Coast beach where one crashed at Himatangi. Himatangi, yes. Mid-air collision, mm -hmm. which produced the remains of 1528. Um, 
bits and major components came from Peter Coleman and Blenheim. Yep. Um, and then the Nelson area as well, um, which I regret to this day the Nelson area one because up until recently, um, recovering some parts from a woman in Wellington, I was informed that her husband had taken a hawker hind apart just outside the um, holiday camp on the beach there at Nelson, and they must have remained there up until recent times. Okay. So um, that's the sort of a bridge version of where the Hawker Hines came from. Um, if I remember at this moment. correctly, yeah. also when that hind was picked up uh, from uh, Frogley in Havelock North, I think one oleo <coughs> came with it, and sort of the bits. And la later on, I, on a trip that I made, I think on my own to uh, to Havelock North, the um, uh, we're looking for other bits and pieces and talking to um, uh, Jim Frogley and he said, oh, the other oleo, probably, I don't know where it would be, he said, it might be in uh, all this pile of stuff, but you'd have to remove it all, and this was coming on night time, it was getting dark, and uh, he said, uh, if you come back in the morning, because I wasn't able to do that, because we were leaving the following day, so I said, look, I don't mind having a look at night. So he said, okay, well... In you go. So he went into the shed and there was all sorts of bits and pieces there of machinery and uh, farm machinery mainly. And I, I moved a lot of the stuff away and it took me about half an hour. And gradually I saw on the underneath a bit, I said, wow, that's the hind oleo. So I shifted all the stuff away and got the other oleo out of that. And yep. um, that was some years later and it was still there. And um, I still don't know really what was underneath the rest of the pile of stuff. <laughs> there could have been other stuff, but just that was how it came about. And yep. uh, got that. Um. Jim Frogley was a very interesting man and most of my expeditions I could write probably small books on yeah. uh, and the difficulties and the problems we run into. The Frogley input was every time I called to see Jim I ended up having to drink copious quantities of some alcoholic brew that he insisted I drank <laughs> and that was the downside of the frogley hind connection. Yeah. Uh, I'm joking, really. It was actually quite amusing, but uh, <laughs> ten minutes after the arrival, all common sense went out the window, and uh, it normally ended up just a drinking session. But he was a character and a nice man. So there you have it. That's uh, that's the story of how the Hines uh, made it into into Don's collection. Yeah, I mean, uh, just that whole bit with Motat and not having this junk come through the front gate. It's uh, it's amazing how things have changed and attitudes at the time and so on. But uh, just the work to pump out a whole a whole pond and yeah, oh yeah, we just threw it in the pond. You did what? I mean, could you imagine that happening these days? <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the things about Don and and his group of uh, helpers and his sons is over the years they've taken they've been given a lead on something and they've just taken the extra mile to go and uh, research it, find it, and then you know, do the hard yards to dig these things out of holes or um, pull things out of ponds or do anything they can to save these aeroplanes. And now he's got the most amazing private collection in, in New Zealand, really. Yeah. it's uh, the, I mean, some of the stuff that he's got there is absolutely unique in the world. Like the, the Vincent, the, the Baffin, um, you know, he's got all sorts of other things there. There's, I think there's four Hawker Hines, there's um, an Anson, uh, all sorts of stuff, Meteor all sorts of stuff there and it's just an amazing collection and, and most of it has just been saved by 
doing the hard yards and the hard work, and and um, you know we owe owe him a lot. Yeah, that's that's for sure. There's a there's a lot of hard work and a lot of sanity gone into that. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Dave and Grant. This is Zach Yates from Harwood in South Taranaki. I'm a member of the Wands Forum, known there as Zach Yates. Uh, the owner of a currently stalled Fletcher top dresser restoration project. Uh, more plastic models than I really should admit to. And as anyone knows, a massive hunger for knowledge about warbirds in New Zealand and all over the world. I've been listening to Wings Over New Zealand show since the beginning and it, it's amazing to think that Dave's got to 100 episodes and congratulations Dave, you've done an amazing job compiling the stories of New Zealand aviation and I know there's so many more out there to be recorded. Um, trying to pick favourites of previous episodes is really hard because each one's better than the last. I've been learning so much about our aviation history and listening to interviews with people who I've never heard of and wanting to learn more about them and what they've talked about, people like Jonathan Pote, uh, Peter Tremaine and uh, more recently Lindsay Budge as well as the forum members and other people that I know personally, um, but still learning more about them and their stories. Um, special things like Wings Over Australia, it was a real privilege to be able to help even in a small way uh, financially and otherwise with that tour and listening to all these great episodes again about places and people who I might have heard of or might not have heard of and now I need to get over there and experience it for myself. Um, I love listening to the show whenever I'm on road trips to air shows or WANS forum meets um, in Hawara we're a fair distance away from anywhere and driving's the best way to do it so I tend to download a whole bunch of episodes that I've listened to before and new ones and listen to them while I'm on the road and it's a great way to pass the time and it really gets me pumped up for whatever event I'm going to. Um, I noticed while uh, just having a look around this morning that when I started searching for wings over in uh, Wings Over New Zealand show was the top autocomplete result in Google and I think that shows something about the popularity of the show. Um, in terms of suggestions for future shows, I know I've emailed Dave probably more than he would like with lots of suggestions but um, it'd be great to hear more from Warbird operators and owners in New Zealand, people like Graham Bethel with the Mustang and Brett Emini who's uh, not just recently the Catalina but also uh, Yak-52s and the Vampire and uh, more selfishly, people I know personally like the Hardings of Wanganui Aerowork, um, an aviation family that goes back to the birth of aviation uh, aerial top dressing in New Zealand. So to sum up, congratulations again Dave, it's been a privilege to be part of your journey, even a small part, and bring on the next 100, 200 episodes. I know you can do it and I know you'll blow us out of the water with what you find. Thanks Dave. next clip that we've got um, is another guy that's uh, been very instrumental over the years in, in saving uh, aircraft as well, including being involved in uh, rescuing and saving a sea fire and the Lancaster Just Jane, which is very well known, and that's Jonathan Pote. He, his, uh, his interview is fascinating. He's an amazing guy and well worth a listen if you haven't heard that show. And here's Jonathan. Well, um... Oh, another visit to mention was Manadun Royal Engineering College, 
they taught all the engineers for the Royal Navy to degree level and they had a number of airframes. Um, one of them was the prototype DH-110, which of course led to the Sea Vixen XF-828. Uh, that was there. Um, one of them was a swordfish, which they used to show primary, secondary and tertiary structure, painted them different colours. And that was incredibly instructive. You could see the strength of the aircraft in one colour, you could see the shape of the aircraft in another colour, and the final, fit, final trimmings in a third colour, and it was just so instructive. And luckily that did survive. That's now the, one of the ones in the Fleet Air Arm Museum, now rebuilt to um, uh, simulate a proper swordfish, HS618. You can always remember the useless things. Name, where I live, not a chance, but <laughs> that was HS618. There was the tale of a um, tempest. Beautiful condition, uh, just the rear monocoque to illustrate monocoque construction, and I hope that still exists. And a Seafire 47. Well, that Seafire 47 went to the Air Training Corps locally, and then, just as I was about to leave school, um, <coughs> I joined a group known as the Historical Aircraft Preservation Society. It was way before its time. It was a group of Air Britain members, but not officially part of Air Britain. And they wanted to save historic airframes. And there were lots around. Um, it didn't survive. It folded after about 10 years, but I'm still proud that we saved some significant airframes which would not exist today, but, but for what we did. Yeah. One of those, of course, was a Lancaster, the uh, close relative of the one in Motat. Okay. We got NX611 by writing to France, dear France, can we have a Lancaster? Getting no reply, <laughs> and then a year later, having a phone call from Mascot, Sydney. I think Mascot's in Sydney. Yeah. Um, and uh, somebody said it's de Havilland, Australia, or whatever here. Whatever, what would you like us to do with your Lancaster? Um, pardon? <laughs> the French have just delivered a Lancaster and asked us to give you a call. <laughs> so, from no planning. Um, it was, oh my God. Uh, but money was raised, mostly in Australia, to the eternal credit of the Aussies. They raised all the money to get the aircraft out of their country. Yeah. Um, and it came home with some um, Gold Coast and Surface Paradise stickers on it, and Shell put some money up. Uh, still in its white maritime markings. Yep. Flown back to Biggin Hill. I was there when it arrived, and that was an emotional moment. And we got that aircraft repainted, we got it flying, and we flew it probably 11 times. But we just didn't have the resources or the money. Yeah. Uh, but it was back in England. And after a chequered career, it is now the one at East Kirkby. And with luck and a lot of money, it will fly again within a few years. Right, and that's just Jane. That's just Jane. Right. So how many people were involved in your um, preservation society? There was no membership, uh, there was no membership fee, there was no membership list, you were a member by thought. If you wanted to be, you were. Yep. And we all wrote to each other, and there were about 20 of us. Okay. But we acquired um, 
the offer of an ex-RAF F-86 Sabre, which was then serving in the Italian Air Force, and the RAF museums still lack a genuine ex-RAF Sabre. Yeah. Um, sadly, we didn't get it home, and I have no idea what happened to it. Uh, but we got several bits of horsa, enough to make an aircraft, and that is now um, in the Army Air Corps Museum. The Sabre, we saved the last Walrus, L2301, which was just a fuselage at an airfield called Tame, lying on its side, no wings, had a tail. We put it upright, we towed it, we stored it, and within a year or two, the Fleet Air Arm Museum was formed. It wouldn't have been formed in time. They were about to scrap the Walrus. Right. So we um, said, look what we've got. And they said, thank you very much. Uh, there was a, we were involved peripherally with a Corsair that's now at Fleet Air Arm Museum. And the Seafire was near me. I was the only member in the Southwest. So when we were given that one, it was mine. Right. Uh, it was being vandalised terribly. So um, in the way of 16-year-olds, I found a spanner and a screwdriver and probably only one of each. And I removed everything from it that could be removed uh, with the result that under my bed were the undercarriage doors, the elevators, various panels, cockpit fittings, all sorts of things. And again... Um, I, I think I was the first person ever to know what that aircraft was. It's quite surprising. In those days, really historic aircraft were around and nobody had idea w any idea which one they were. Right. This particular Seafire had VP476 written on the backing plate to the propeller. The propeller was removed, uh, so you could clearly see VP476, and everybody said, that's the one. I got some sandpaper out and had a go at the rear fuselage and after a little bit of gentle work VP441 appeared and that was actually the airframe. The propeller backing plate was um, a robbed part from somewhere else. Right. Eventually that aircraft went to America and it's the one that's finally flying at Breckenridge in the uh, western states. Yeah, so a remarkable story there, uh, just on the preservation side of things, and uh, Jonathan's story goes on to an amazing career. He went out to uh, uh, Laos in, um, in Southeast Asia uh, and was operating with the, um, with the Air America guys occasionally, oh, wow. and um, he, uh, he, he went on to become a doctor and uh, then became a Royal Air Force doctor, and he talks about all sorts of things he did in the Royal Air Force, and um, he's now very involved with uh, the preservation of aircraft at MOTAT, and um, talks about that as well, but yeah, an amazing chap, a really, really interesting chap, and that's a great, great episode, and you know, one, one of my favourites as well, and I know a lot of other people enjoyed it. Cool. No, it sounds really interesting. You know, what was going on when, when uh, you know, air forces and, and governments and, and so I just thought, oh, we'll never need these again. No one will ever want them. We'll just scrap them. We'll park them. We'll leave them. And, and uh, yeah, just no sense of preservation at all. And, and what, what he's done to get parts under his bed, I thought that was awesome. Yeah, and he was a kid. You know, he was... Yeah, when he first started looking at that stuff, if you listen to the, the full episode, you get a better picture than that clip. But, you know, he started 
really taking notice of stuff around him when he was really young and and when he was in that association that was saving the aircraft he was 16 years old so yeah. you know um we we've got a lot to be thankful to to Jonathan for too just like Don and a lot of others around that have gone the hard yards and saved these aircraft yeah fantastic I oh, agree agreed absolutely fantastic and it's great that you're capturing all this information and and you know you're getting getting details and histories and things most of us never dreamed of let alone had heard of and and uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm really happy that you've done all this mate you've you've done a hell of a lot of work to get to 100 episodes that's for sure yeah well thank you um as i said earlier uh and i think i said it when i was talking with matt um i I honestly sometimes don't know what to expect and what comes out in these interviews is, is um, you know, a huge surprise to me as well. And <laughs> um, and it's great. It's it's really neat to find out. And you find all these connections as well. There's aircraft or museums or whatever that you've, you've known about or people you've known about for a long time, but you just don't really see the full picture until you actually talk to people involved. And, yeah, it's uh, it's a wonderful thing, really. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. G'day Dave, Matt Austin from June E, halfway between Sydney and Melbourne in sunny Australia and about half an hour from Tamora, the home of Aussie Warbirds. Congratulations on reaching 100 episodes of the Wings Over New Zealand show Aviation podcast. It's a bit of a favourite, I've only picked it up in recent times, having been a little bit involved with your Wings Over Australia adventure last year. But I've gone back and I've been devouring, binging you may say, on various episodes of the podcast particularly the Wings Over Australia episodes, but also quite a few of your own Kiwi ones. Some fascinating information, very informative, very entertaining, very interesting. Thank you so much for what you've done, for the people that you've brought to the show. A couple of episodes that I've really enjoyed in recent times. Episode 89, the one about missing aircraft in New Zealand. Some fascinating research there. I also very much enjoyed episode 97 with Lindsay Budge, the B-17 gunner. Bit of an interesting one about things not very much known to a lot of people. So thank you for what you've done. It really has informed and entertained and taught me quite a bit. As a fan of Australian National Airways and the DC-3s that went to New Zealand having served with ANA, I could possibly see about getting a bit of information, so maybe some of that could be covered. Well, mate, all the very best. Congratulations on 100 shows. Hope we look forward to 200 shows at some time, if you've still got hair by that stage. So all the very best, and thank you very much. Cheers. Our next clip is another really popular show, and uh, it was mentioned by... Peter Johnson is uh, one of his favourites, and that's Peter Tremaine. And P Peter's a really interesting guy because he was one of the original uh, RNZF ice pilots, and this is before they started getting the Hercules down there and the, and the Iroquois. And he, he did train up on the the Oster and Beaver, which uh, were the original ice aircraft for the Royal New Zealand Air Force, but he, um, he didn't quite get onto the Beaver or the Oster, and uh, ended up flying down there with the United States. P Peter's uh, interview, he did so much, he's done so much in his life, and he's still doing a lot of, of interesting things. Um, it's well worth a listen to, to his one, and yeah, here's, here's a clip from that. Uh, so I was assigned to go down there with VX6, 
the US Navy squadron, uh, and I was to fly the Otter, and uh, which is what it, basically what I did. Flew down by C-130, uh, one of the VX-6 ones, absolutely fantastic. I understood that there was a whole world of aviation that <laughs> we had touched in the RNZ. Right. And it was just worlds apart, and they were B models. But it was uh, it was fantastic flying in uh, into the uh, ice runway. Uh, the ice runway was incidentally was um, they'd carve it out of the sea ice, and you could land on there with wheels, or you could land with skis or, or whatever. But um, later on, when we got our C-130s, we would land on the ice runway without didn't have skis. Yep. And uh, but of course the the U.S. Navy ones which were BLs, the L standing for ski, that uh, they could fly and land anywhere in the Antarctic, including, of course, the South Pole. Uh, they'd just drop the skis down and um, they would land at 10,000 feet, keep the engines running up there. Um, hard to start otherwise, not just the cold, but the, uh, you know, the elevation. Um, and I did that. I, I, got, I got around quite a lot uh, down there. Uh, initially... On the Otter, uh, I was—I uh, flew with a, another U.S. Navy pilot and uh, a mechanic fellow. Um, what do they call him? I had a special name for him. He was a—he was a Navy petty officer, and uh, we would carry our survival gear with us, and which we'd use all the time. We would fly off hours and hours down to the Beardmore Glacier and set up camp, pull this tent out, and. Uh, set it up on the snow and um, we'd, we'd sit there for quite a number of days doing flights for uh, some of the uh, uh, groups that were uh, operating in the area down there with their sleds and so on. I, only the New Zealanders had dogs still then. Uh, the Americans by that time were using uh, skidoos, the early uh, uh, skidoos. Right. And uh, we would take them out to various places um, that they were looking at, uh, geologists and uh, glaciologists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and then we would fly back, and every now and again a C-130 would uh, come down and um, uh, drop a bunch of fuel for us. They would actually just uh, open the, they would touch down on skis uh, close to where we were, and roll these uh, cans of uh, JP-4 out the back, and uh, yeah, there were 50, you know, 50 gallon uh, drums, yep. and then we'd have to roll them back to where we were, where the airplane was, and uh, hand pump it in, and we'd hand pump it through a chamois, you know, the, the fuel to uh, to keep the water out of it. Uh, right. It was all very interesting. I mean, a lot of hard work out there, and uh, we'd dig a big hole in this flat surface, uh, like a big trench, and uh, put some steps down into it, uh, had a big piece of canvas that we throw over the top, put snow on the top of it, and uh, we'd, that's where we cooked and um, socialized in there. Right. Yeah. Right. It was fun. Uh, I mean, it, was, it wasn't any colder. I mean, one of the th odd things about it at the time was I, I couldn't understand how these Americans uh, could adapt so easily to these very low temperatures whether it was operating the airplanes or whether it was just living there. And then, of course, yep. I came here and started flying for these night freight operations. I tell you, in wintertime, 
whether you're in Chicago when it's minus 20 up there or up in Maine where it's minus 30 or up in Anchorage. I understood then. These guys, right. these guys were used to it. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, unlike New Zealanders or Australians in particular, uh, got no concept of, you, you'd say, why don't we just stop operating? You know, every, all, the, all the hydraulic fluid is leaking out of the struts and so on, you know, because it's so cold. It's like, just get on with it. Just fly. <laughs> and that's what they do. You know, and so it was interesting. The, uh, it took years until I started coming to the States in winter that, uh, you know, I realized where these guys, uh, what their background was. Oh, and a lot of them had um, operated up in uh, Greenland as well, at Thule. Right. So, um, in fact, I think the squadron had been up there with their BLs for some time. So it was, okay. you know, they just had the background. But um, So that, yeah. that, that actual training that you'd done with the RNZAF um, up in, uh, in the mountains here, before you went down there, had that been sufficient to prepare you for what uh, what you were doing when you were down there, or was it a bit of a, a bit of a difference between the simulated training and the actual operation? Well, uh, I, I probably had more uh, background in survival as a result of the New Zealand training than any of the Americans that I flew with. Um, wow. They uh, they hadn't done anything like that at all. They didn't go to any survival winter survival school, as far as I know. Um, apart from the normal ones that when they joined the Air Force or Navy or whatever they did. And um, I, uh, uh, but we did fly, uh, we did fly the Beaver and I was going to say the Oster, I, was, I started talking about the Oster. We, did, we didn't take the New Zealand Antarctic Oster up to Mount Cook, uh, to the Tasman Glacier. And I, I was wondering the other day when I was fiddling around with my website, and I thought, why didn't we do that? And the reason was we didn't have a wheel ski set up. What we had was a set of wheels, which we were using at Wigram, and a set of skis, which were put on when the airplane got off the ship, or whatever it was, the, uh, you know, the ship down at, uh, in the Antarctic. And it just stayed, right. stayed on skis. So right. um, that wasn't going to be possible. Uh, because we were what we were doing at Mount Cook each day with the beaver was uh, taking it off the grass airfield in those days, the Mount Cook airstrip by the Hermitage, flying up to the up onto the, the lower slopes of the Tasman Glacier, and um, doing all our takeoffs and landings up there, taking off downhill, um, and uh, then swooping around and landing uphill. Uh, and so on and so forth. So we, we did a lot of ski stuff. Now that was on a wheel ski combination. And then uh, we would um, then head back down at the end of the day. We'd take all the pilots would come up and, you know, sit around in the glacier taking their turns. Uh, and then we would go back to Mount Cook uh, airfield and you had to remember to bring the skis up. That was, <laughs> that was the key, which had to be pumped up. It was a hydraulic... Yep pump in the between the seats uh, okay to pump the things up and land on the wheels but as far as the Oster was concerned um, what the Air Force did was uh, Harry Wigley uh, I'm sure you've heard of Harry Wigley yeah definitely yeah Harry uh, uh, Harry Lantus at cost the Air Force uh, his one of his wheel ski Osters ah yeah so we flew with him he uh, he sat in the right seat of his his Oster, 
uh, watched us very carefully and flew his Austers. And I tell you what, it was, uh, it was a pretty exciting stuff because he'd, he'd learned so many techniques, he and his guys, about how to fly these underpowered little airplanes off, uh, you know, off the glaciers. It was incredible. Uh, and I remember clearly what he'd said. Okay, uh, now open the throttle fully, use the friction nut to hold it there, and then put your right hand, because you're sitting in the left seat, right hand onto the stick, put your left hand up on the flap lever, which is, have you ever flown an Oster? Do you? No, I haven't. Oh. No. Well, it was, it was mainly controlled. There was a big lever above your head on the left, close to the wing, um, yeah. inside the cockpit, where you pulled the, this big lever down and it pulled the flaps down. And, and then you pushed it up and it pulled the flap. The flaps went back up. It was all mechanical. And so off we'd go, and we'd trundle and trundle and trundle. And so to Harry, what, what kind of airspeed do we lift off? And he said, forget about it. He said, don't even look at the airspeed indicator. It means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's got no, because it'll never probably go above 30 or whatever it was. I don't know. And he said, okay. He said, when it sort of feels about right, he said, pull both sticks back. In other words, pull full flaps and stick hard back. And, yeah. and as soon as it comes unstuck, now we're, we're taking off downhill, as soon as it comes off the snow, slam the flaps back up again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and it worked. I mean, it, it's just amazing. So uh, now all these things start coming back to me. But flying with Harry was, uh, I mean, what a, what a hoot that was. Yeah, that was, a, that was a fantastic interview. I really enjoyed uh, talking with Peter, and he's a great guy. Yeah, no, that was. I remember that episode when it came out, and I was just hanging on it. It was <laughs> the story of the Oster just at the end there. I remember being uh, slightly gobsmacked by that one, but uh, it works. And yeah, wow. <laughs> Hi, this is Andy Wright from Aircrew Book Review in Australia. Congratulations, Dave, on the hundredth episode of the Wings Over New Zealand show. Before I started Aircrew Book Review in two thousand and nine, I always turned to the Wings Over New Zealand forum if I wanted to know about a book about a Kiwi airman who flew during World War II. The forum continues to provide a great service to the New Zealand and international aviation scene as a whole and is easily the greatest Kiwi aviation resource in existence. Online at least. <laughs> I've watched and listened to its spin-off, The Wands Show, become exactly the same thing. Books, magazines, website and blogs are wonderful things, but the recorded voice, the voice of someone who lived the events they're talking about, is priceless, especially as time marches on. I'd particularly like to thank you, Dave, on your commitment to record the last of the World War II veterans. Before long, they will no longer be with us, and I'm worried that while we're officially looking back, with respect, 100 years, that the last living links from another time are leaving us almost unnoticed. Thanks for giving them an eternal voice, Dave. I've said many, many times that Kiwi publishers make the finest paperbacks when it comes to aircrew books. They almost don't need to bother with hardcovers. They're that good. However, I think it is fair to say they also make the best aviation podcasts. Here's to the next 100 episodes, Dave. When you get beyond 200, you'll have to come to Australia to get the rest of the Kiwi population. Press on, mate. Uh, the next little clip we've got here uh, comes from uh, the, the Classic Fighters 
episode uh, from 2013, and um, one of the one of the uh, great guys on the Wings of New Zealand forum uh, is Al Marshall, who was instrumental in getting the Bristol freighter at Omaka running again, uh, which is basically through uh, the thread that he was running on the forum, it became a worldwide sensation. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, he's he's got a great personality. He's a he's a real hard case, and um, always always like catching up with him. And um, uh, he said to me, "Why don't we go and um, you know record a, an engine start?" And I thought, "Ah, oh, cool, cool." And so I got up in the cockpit and I went to hop into the into the right hand seat. And he's like, "Oh no, no, jump over to the left hand seat." And, <laughs> Put, put me right on the spot because he he decided that I was going to be doing the engine start. Now I, I've never, I had never ever started an aircraft engine of any sort in my life. You know, I'm not a I'm not a pilot. I didn't know what I was doing. And you can actually hear in this, I'm absolutely nervous as hell because when you're sitting in that in that cockpit, it's it's a massive aircraft. Mm-hmm. And, and and you look look out to your left and you've got a huge Bristol. Hercules uh, engine just sitting right there. I mean, you, if you put your hands out, the blades will probably cut your fingers off. So yeah. that's how that's how close it is. And like on the Catalina. Mm, yeah, exactly. And uh, so anyway, uh, Al very uh, very uh, graciously took me through it and and was patient because I really had no idea what I was doing. And he kept and 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 by the way, this is this is at night. <laughs> so a, a lot of the stuff that. Um, this is, a, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the air show, and a lot of the stuff that he's trying to point out in the cockpit, I'm, like, struggling to see it because it's <laughs> reasonably dark in there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was uh, such an experience. I mean, what an experience. And so, uh, and yeah, let's noise. have... Yeah, what a noise, yeah. Uh, let's have a listen to that. It's a, it's a, um interesting clip. <laughs> cool. So from left to right in the cockpit, we've got the... Uh captain's window open so we can talk to the, the ground crew outside, they've got the fire extinguisher and uh, a wee bit of crowd control there. So down to your left hand knee, yep. you'll see there's some guarded switches, they're the starters. Down here? Those two? Yeah. yeah. And the one next to it is what the English call accumulator control, okay. battery master. Yep. So if you flick that on. Down? Yes. Starts to bring, um, we hear, some of the electric gyros that were replaced from the old um, pneumatic gyros that turn and slip and what have you. Okay. So the, with, this, with the freighter, the, the technique we use is pretty much similar to what the um, the ground crew use. Oh, sorry, again, the, uh, the pilots would use. Yep. And we're going to um, crank the engine, assume that the, uh, assure that the engine's clear, able to be spun by the starter motor, and then we're going to introduce fuel through electric priming pump once the engine is fueled, then we'll turn the ignition on. So what that does is it assumes that it lets us get the engine with enough gas to start, and then it will run on what's what's on the primer. Okay. And then once the engine's running nicely, then we'll turn this um, lever here on, and that's that uh, lets the carburetor do the rest. So. Okay. So your left-hand knee there is your is one of your electrical panels. There's lots of um, indicators there, starting from the top there. Two fuel pressure gauges, left and right. Yep. It's a pressure carburetor, so um, it relies on about 30 psi at the carburetor to operate all the uh, the systems inside the the carb. Then, um, yeah, so as as you've seen there, starter switch for left and right engines, okay. those guarded ones. Yep. And then below that, you'll see a uh, 
switch that says um, primer master. Yep. yep. That's a priming pump which sits on the left hand, the, sorry, the right hand of the cell. Okay. Little 28 volt DC pump. It'll provide pressure to a solenoid in each of the engines. So the next switch to it is where that fuel will be directed, whether we pump it into the left engine tonight or the right. Okay. So that's probably the most tricky bit is starting the correct engine and priming the correct engine. Right. So if you look at, I think on this case, to prime the left hand engine, that priming selector switch will uh, go down. Is that correct? Let's see. It's hard to read. Remember, I remember it being easy to start the uh, starboard engine because you're pushing down with the starboard starter with your left with your thumb yep. and pulling up on that switch to start the to prime the starboard engine. It says engine primer master selection. Yeah, cool. Righto. So what we've done, I've already pulled the that propeller blade, the propeller through four blades. So as far as we're concerned, it's ready to start. Okay. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to crank the engine, ensure that it's clear by counting four blades. So you can look out the window, you can count if you want. Yep. And um, so once you see four blades go past the window, with your thumb on that starter switch. This one here. The the one above. This one here. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And with that primer master pump going, then you'll push the primer selector switch, which is the one on the right. That one. Yeah, so with the priming pumps off at the moment, so if you press down on that priming selector, yes, down. you should be able to hear it click on the left hand side. And up. Cool. Right, because that's just a little valve in that left hand engine. Okay. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of jiggery pokey, but what you want to do is press down on the starter, We'll have the priming pump running, so we'll count the blades. We'll do it as an exercise, a tag team sort of thing, like I say. But the important thing is to keep your thumb on the starter, yep. and then push that priming one down. Down, okay. So I count four, then down. Yeah, yeah so count four blades, and then we'll prime the, the next four blades, and then I'll reach up. The ignition's up here. I've got the magneto switch oh, yeah. is unguarded. I'll look after the throttle. Over here, we've got the rev counter in the center of the um, flight deck, rev counter, boost gauge, oil pressure, and uh, we've got fuel contents down here, so we've got enough for what we're going to do. Okay. So what we'll do now, turn this pump down here, which is the booster pump. Cool, so they're working. This selector here is the fuel. And this is in the centre of the engine control pedestal. Yep. So, because we're running the engines from one tank, we'll turn the starboard tank on. There's a big isolator over here, massive big isolating thing on the right-hand side of the flight deck. We'll turn yep. him on. Like I say, so we're using the starboard tank. Yep. We'll turn the starboard boost pump on, and you'll see that left-hand pressure gauge. In fact, both pressure gauges will should register some fuel pressure. Yes. There we yeah, go. Yep, there it goes. So that's the crossfeed valve open. 
Right, right, so we'll just play it by ear um, and, and see what we get. So just getting all clear from the guys outside. All clear? I'll come onto this now. So this is a um, park brake. So the park brake's on. Righto, so unguard, unguard the switch. Yep. So with your thumb, press down. Oh, in fact, sorry, the priming master pump has to come on. So that's the switch on the left of those two priming pairs. That's right. Next one down. And we'll hear that we'll hear that pump come on. Okay, flip it down? Yep. Ah uh, yep. Cool. Okay, so just confirm we're all clear. All clear. And if you keep keep um keep your thumb on the starter and once we've got the four blades, push that priming selector switch down yep. for another four blades. Tell me when you see the four blades, I'll turn the ignition on and we'll get it picked up. Okay. Yeah, so thumb down. Good. So now we're just winding up the big starting clutch. One, two, three, four. One, two. Yeah, you've got to keep your thumb on that starter switch. Oh, right, okay. One. Two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Ignition's coming on. Ignition. Okay, it's over here now, Dave. We're looking to recover. Yep. smooth idle. You can see the boost gauge has gone down because it's got suction in the manifold. Oil pressure is about 110 psi. Awesome. And it sounds beautiful. It does, eh? And we're getting a small crowd as well with the cameras. That's good. Ready to um, take it out, taxi it out for a uh, for a run up. Okay. So maybe if you take the microphone outside the window again, just um, open the window and just have a listen outside. We don't have a great deal of fuel, so we won't bother running it up. 
because the aeroplane isn't all that secured in the tail. Yep. I've got the uh, I've got the park brake on, so it's not going anywhere. Yep. We're going to point out it's 100 degrees cylinder head temperature. So we're going to shut it down. We've got throttle, propeller, mixture control, or fuel on off. And up here is of course the ignition. So at the moment the ignition's both on. What we need to do now is a safety check to make sure that when we turn the fuel off, the ignition's safe. So what I want you to do is reach up in turn, go off, off, on, on. Okay. So, yep. so what we're going to do is we're going to turn one meter off, yep. turn the other one off, it'll go quiet, and then you can just click them both back on again. Okay. And we're looking for dead silence out the window. Yep. Lovely. So now we know that when we turn the fuel off, there's no sparks that's going to upset anyone on the ground. Right. So you can reach down for the right, the, the uh, fuel condition lever there, pull it to closed, and then pull the throttle back to, back to closed. Which is that one. Lovely. Awesome, Al. That's freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Big hiss from the pneumatic brakes when I turn the brakes off. Smelly old Bristol air, it floods out of that valve. Just the last one there is, this is called a gang bar. If you're in a hurry to turn everything off, it, use, um, it does all the switches at once. So that's the ignition off. The fuel's off by doing that and that and the big master one here. And then we'll just reach down and turn the booster pump off. Awesome. I can't believe what I've just done. I know. That's fantastic, cool, eh? mate. Fantastic. Yeah. And this is all down to you for and Marty for getting this and running yeah, and, and Yeah, to... and a lot of other people. Yep. The yep, cool yep. thing is, you know, you can say to yourself or anyone that you're the only person in the world today to start a Bristol freighter. Yeah. True. True. So how about that? That was uh, that was a pretty special <laughs> very event and and a special recording for for the show there. And uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think I'll be doing that again. And uh, you know, that most people don't ever get to hear what it sounds like in the cockpit of a Bristol freighter when it's running. So, you know, that's that's another little unique feather in the cap for the show there, really. Yeah, well, I mean, not many people get to hear one running at all these days. So that's to, right. to hear right. to hear one running, and now I also know what went through getting the damn thing to start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, it's all down to uh, Al Marshall and. Uh, um, Marty Nickel and, and the team that they put together there that put those engines back together, got all the birds' nests out and turned it into a living, breathing aircraft again. And then I'm really looking forward to getting back down to Amarca next year um, for the big air show again and and seeing it trundling around and firing up again. Yeah, well, I mean, just the fact they've got it taxiing is fantastic. Mm, yep, yeah. absolutely. I remember some men started prying and others started crying. Um, Part way through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. 
The Courage and Valor Podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com Our next uh, clip comes from another Mr. Marshall, and this is Les Marshall, a well-known pilot on the uh, on the top dressing scene here. He was one of the pioneer DC-3 top dressing pilots, and um, he also... Uh, he also did a lot of other flying in his time, and uh, this particular little clip is um, quite an interesting event in his flying career that uh, he probably hasn't told too many people. Yeah, that's going back to my glider, the glider towing days. Um, and my mate, who I still see frequently these days, and he he would confirm he he would confirm this tale. Yep. Um, he was he was doing the gliding instructing and I was doing the towing and we turned up on the Saturday morning before anybody else all keen to go and it was a foggy morning at Matamat, typical Waikato fog. Yep. So we pulled the glider out of the out of the hangar and rigged it. <coughs> pulled the tiger out, warmed it up and then shut it down again um, and waited waited for this fog, you see. Anyway, we're getting pretty impatient after an hour or two. It was a good old Waikato fog. And then it appeared to be thinning somewhat, and we could see the sun. So it shows the stupidity of youth, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, we thought we'd, and Peter was as bad as me, because he agreed to do it. We thought we'd do a weather check, see how what the hell we thought we were going to prove, I don't know, but we could see the sun. We thought, well, it's it's breaking up. It's hard to credit that you could do such a dumb thing, but we did. Um, we hooked the glider on the back, on the, on the back of the tiger, got everything lined up, and it just sounds so stupid. But anyway, off we go. I take up slack slowly on the rope. He's in the glider. Yep. Nobody else around, you see. And we thought, yeah, it's, it's the fog's breaking up, so he'll be able to do a quick circuit around in the sailplane. Well, of course, we get going <coughs> under tow. Just get airborne, and the sun disappears. It's gone. So I had the compass... Of all things, I had to, I, while I was warming up, I turned the grid ring of the compass around, and I had the compass set for our takeoff vector. Get airborne, so it climbed on instruments in the time with the glider on behind. It this really s sounds like a line shoot, doesn't it? But I'm not proud of the fact that we did this. We climbed up through the cloud, and it was, of course, it was much, much thicker than what we hoped it would be. <coughs> the sun disappeared, and I don't know what height we popped out at, six, seven hundred feet, something like that, yep. into the bright blue. And just at the same time as a civil aviation Piper Apache goes past in a turn, he's. I, we came up out of the out of the top of the fog and he goes past off off to the front and I read the read the radio as he went past you think oh my god father civil aviation 
So <laughs> climb just clear of the fog by 100 to 300 feet to see that the fog extended everywhere, but it was breaking up on the edge of the, on the edge of the aerodrome. But it did a gentle right one turn, Peter hang on the back in the glider, and then we descended back into the fog on the reciprocal of what we'd climbed out on. Yep. With him still on the rope. Quite incredible. So I towed him downhill, <laughs> back back down through the fog. He, he told me afterwards he was putting the spoilers in and out on the on the glider. And he stayed on the rope until we came out the bottom of the fog which was, I don't know, a couple of hundred feet, something like that, or lower. The, the mist, had, the fog had actually lifted a little bit in this time. Yeah. So then he unhooked, <coughs> and I slid around on the final and landed, and he came in behind me in the sampler. And then, just after that, in comes the Apache, the CAA Apache. And I thought, oh man, how are we going to get away with this, you know? So, taxi the Tiger over to the over to the pumps, and the Apache taxis up to the pumps. And it was a, uh, it was a guy by the name of George Arkley, who was a local, well not a local, but he was one of the CAA, um, what do you call them? Airborne traffic cops, I suppose. It was Tony Glowacky was one, George Arkley was another. They'd just wander around and uh, try and keep an eye on, on the activities of some of these tearaway young fellows in the, yeah. in the system. Well, I noticed that George looked very white. He was very pale and he had perspiration on his brow and he beckons me over <clears throat> and he said, were you the pilot of that tiger moth? And of course I've got my helmet in my hand and my, my leather jacket on, there's nobody else around. So <laughs> it was a bit of a dumb question, but I couldn't really say no either. <clears throat> so he said, come with me. And I thought, well, here it goes. So he took me into the clubhouse and he asked me what I thought I was doing climbing up through fog with a glider on the back. So I explained to him just as as it had happened, you know, and I said it was an absolutely dumb thing to do. We thought the fog was breaking and my mate in the glider was keen to do a gliding circuit and all those sort of things. So he listened to all of that. And he said, have you learnt from that? And I said, certainly have. And he says, well, lad, he said, I'll tell you something. He said, you back absolutely saved my bacon this morning. Right. And, well, how's that? He said, I was out of gas. He said, I was, I'd had no options left and when you appeared at the top of the fog, he said, you absolutely saved my bacon. He said, I didn't know where the aerodrome was. He hadn't seen it. He was looking for it, couldn't find it. He had actually flown from Paraparam bound Hamilton that morning. Hamilton was covered in fog, so he'd circled, he'd held for a while at Hamilton, and then he'd kept himself enough fuel, he thought, to get to Tauranga. On his way across to Tauranga, around about, 
Corbett before he got to where we were. He had recalculated his fuel again and found that he didn't have enough gas to get the tower on. Right. So he was out of gas and everything else was covered in fog. It was just a big Waikato fog. Wow. So he'd run out of options. He was a CAA safety man, out of gas, <laughs> on top of fog. All of a sudden we appear out the top of this fog, so he followed us down, followed us back down. Wow. So he shook my hand and he thanked me so much for saving his bacon. Yeah, so it was uh, quite a neat ending to, a, to what was an absolutely stupid story. Yeah. And it's as true as I sit here, because Pete Blakebrother, who was in the glider, he would vouch for that. We, we, we often comment on that, on that little tale. Yeah. yeah, just one of Les's amazing stories, and he, wow. he had a lot, of, a lot of great stories. That was amazing. And, and, you know, you think he's there thinking, that's it, I can just have my license shredded. But no, <laughs> yeah. he, turns out he saved the safety guy. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of amazing how things like that happen uh, in life, isn't it? That yeah. you, think, you think you've completely stuffed up, and it turns out you've actually done something amazing for someone else. So, yeah, it's a you know, great story. Yeah, I agree. I just want to say, you know, there's a, we've heard a number of clips here today, but uh, there's a lot more in the archive, and, you know, there's some really great shows that I haven't had time to, to put clips into this uh, show from, but, you know, I just want to mention a few of them, and uh, one of them is uh, the Black Sands uh, episode that I, I did just in, uh, was it October? November last year. It's a fairly recent one. It, it's our longest show, although this one may become the longest one by the look of the timeline. Uh, and uh, it, it's long for a reason because it's absolutely packed with amazing stories of uh, people from all walks of aviation who attended the Black Sands Fly-In, which is uh, really for the... Uh, it's a recreational fly-in and there's a lot of people who are home builders and, and uh, it's, it's run by the Sport Aircraft Association of New Zealand. And, you know, really, really great bunch of people, and some of them have got amazing backgrounds. And uh, um, if you if you're keen on hearing, you know, interesting aviation stories and and some innovative uh, people that design and build airplanes uh, in their in their garage, yeah, have have a, have a listen to that one, um, Black Sands. Other uh, other favourite shows that uh, that I'd, I'd love to have put more clips in from, but uh, just we've run out of time. There's things like the Avro Anson run. Uh, which uh, Bill and Robin Reed, uh, their wonderful, unique Avro Anson Mark One that uh, is based down at Omaka, um, they invited me into it to uh, have a, have the experience and and record the experience of uh, an engine run in that while they were just doing a run up uh, before the air show and that was just brilliant and you know how many people get to sit in an Anson while its engines are running and and you get that whole sort of visceral experience of uh, of that, you know, through the, the recording as well. And, you know, there's been some great uh, episodes already from the Wings Over Australia series as well. Um, you know, the ones that stick in my mind uh, are the likes of um, my visit to Moorabbin uh, to the uh, Australian National Aviation Museum. Um, those guys were brilliant. And, you know, there's some some really, really great stories there, um, really great characters and, you know, if you haven't listened to that one yet, go and have a listen. They're, they're doing some wonderful things with their aircraft. Even better if you get a chance to come here to Melbourne, do what Absolutely. Dave did, come and see the uh, museum. I'm a proud member. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a brilliant museum. It's uh, um, it's one of those museums that's it, it's uh, based on uh, the people who are absolute enthusiasts who get stuck in and do hard work and um, you know they've saved a lot of aircraft over the years and um, no I can't I can't I can't fault them they're just a brilliant museum um, you know and also in Australia I had a, a great uh, interview with Keith Webb uh, who does a lot of uh, similar things to what I do with recording veterans mm -hmm. and um, I found that one really interesting and um, you know one of the uh, one of the veterans uh, that I got to meet and, and interview over there was Peter Isaacson who is an amazing guy he flew in Lancaster around the world including to New Zealand so and you know, that was and under the Sydney Harbour Bridge yeah yeah exactly oh god this I mean you go back through those 99 shows and there's so much in there <laughs> And some of the, some of them have got multiple people in them as well. There might be you know five or six different stories in an episode. So um, yeah, yeah, there's just so much in there. We've covered a bit, <laughs> <laughs> and we've got and we've got a lot more to come. Oh, I think you've got another twenty episodes just in the Wings Over Australia content. Yeah, easily, easily. Yeah. And then I've probably got I've probably got another twenty episodes of New Zealand material as well that's recorded, but it needs to be edited into. Uh, you know, usable condition, and some of some of it's uh, work in progress. Some of it I've recorded bits and pieces here and there, uh, but I'm going to be recording more. Like for example, I'm working on a series, or I assume it would be a series because there's quite a bit of material already, uh, as a tribute to the uh, Bell Iroquois in our international yeah. service. And already I've talked to some pretty amazing people who were involved with that, and there's a lot of other people have lined up as well. Um, there's another series I'm working on regarding the mosquito um, and that's what's well, basically the New Zealand mosquito story and it's going to have veterans who flew them uh, during the war and also after the war uh, there's going to be people who have restored mosquitoes for museums and there's going to be people who have restored them to fly so um, that's a that's one of these long-term projects I've been working on that for a while <laughs> um, and you know that's going to come out of course one of the episodes that is already in the archive you can go and listen to is the, the number 75 squadron story part one which is the wellington era and uh, that covers the the beginning of the squadron right through to their service with vickers wellingtons and uh glenn turner and i are, are working uh on further episodes in that uh, the next one will cover the sterling era the short sterlings um we're actually working at the moment to um get a few more uh, interviews there hopefully and uh, then we'll, we'll we'll put that together and get that one out though these, these it, it's a series but they'll drip feed out as and when we can do it I've, I've also been recording with Lancaster guys and um, vampire guys and stuff like that as well so it's all going to come out eventually and uh, yeah other things that are coming up in the future with the show there's uh, I'm hoping to do some profiles of some airfields around New Zealand Okay. Um, fe featuring airfields. Uh, I know I've done one in the past that you know had a look around at things that are happening at Ardmore. I want to look at a few of the other airfields around, um, and I've got a few in mind. So keep a, keep an ear out for that because there'll be some interesting people that you meet around an airfield. I reckon. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean some other ideas that I've got uh, that are that are brewing away. There's there's going to be a series at some stage on uh, New Zealanders who flew the Corsair. Um, I don't know when that's going to come out, but I've got a lot of material there already. Uh, 
I want to do some more museum stories. Uh, you know, things like doing that one inside the Lancaster was fantastic, and I, I really am quite keen to promote aviation museums and and get into the stories of their aircraft that are that are on display. So, um, and the people who have either flown in them, worked on them, or restored them for the museum, all that kind of stuff. And uh, another another uh, idea that I'm working on, I'd like to actually. Something else I'd really like to do is get more ladies on the show that are involved in aviation. Um, you know, we haven't had too many uh, female pilots or mechanics or anyone that's involved in, in that, uh, but they are out there, and, and you know, if, if anyone's got some stories that they can recommend, let me know. Yeah. But yeah. Particularly the pioneers, you know, the the older ones with a bit of experience. Yeah, no, definitely. The, uh, there's some uh, amazing ladies in aviation who have... Uh, Especially as you mentioned, the ones, the the pioneers and so on, they they had to push through a lot of barriers to uh, make it now common to to have ladies on the flight deck of airliners, ladies in military aircraft, and and um, ladies flying in commercial aircraft, the lighties around the place. Yep, exactly, exactly. And we've always had, um, you know, right from the beginning of the air club scene, we've always had ladies flying uh, here in New Zealand. There there were quite a few of them back in the 1930s. You know, if yep. you go back through, and, and some of them became famous because they were really good pilots. You know, they they would be like the big name pilot at an air show. So mm. um, people like Erhard Clifford and um, well, obviously Gene Batten and and people like that. Um, so it's not like a a new thing and, and finding that kind of those early pioneers is going to be difficult but yeah um, now they've they've got stories to tell as well I'm sure and it'd be great to talk to some of them for the show yeah um, it'd be good to talk to uh, uh, some of the flying training um, schools and and uh, also um, you know talk to some young people that are learning to fly too it'd be neat to do a series on that I don't know where where and when we're going to be able to do that but uh, yeah so there's there's plenty more to come and there's also a lot more to come in the um, Wings Over Australia series and we'll talk uh, a little bit more about what's to come there with uh, James Kitely. Cool. Welcome to the show, uh, James Kitely, my Wings Over Australia co-host, when we did the uh, the trip around, well, quite a substantial part of Australia back in, uh, was it November, James? It was indeed. Great to be back, Dave. Um, we're good, good to be talking again, and um, well, what a, it was quite an experience, wasn't it? Oh, it was. I mean, geez, it was almost a month-long wall-to-wall aviation tour, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was, it uh, the, was the places we went and the people we met. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was fantastic. I think. Um, I think we've said this before, and when we've talked about it before, it was incredibly tiring, incredibly intense. Um, but it was terrific, as, as you say. The people we met. It, it, it's easy to get focused on the aeroplanes, isn't it? But um, it was really about the people, and I think. Personally, a lot of these people are, are, are friends or colleagues or chaps or, or women I bump into um, traveling around, and, and it was really good to be able to um, you know, sit down and talk to them about what, what made them tick, what they got out of aviation, and I learned a lot too. It's terrific in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, for the listeners who might not have uh, sampled some of the, the Wings Over Australia uh, episodes uh, so far that have already out there in our, in our first 99 episodes, um, we've covered the Airways Museum, um, which is a fascinating and quite entertaining uh, episode. And then you've got the Australian National Aviation Museum at um, Moorabbin, isn't it? That's uh, right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and then we've got the um, 
B24 restoration group with uh, veteran Nat Eichler showing us around the B24. Uh, that was a that was a great experience as well. Very uh, special. Yeah, yeah, and we've also um, had Ian Whitney talking about his uh, Papua New Guinea and and Pacific Island recoveries of aircraft and various other in- interesting uh, aviation stuff that he's been into. So I think that was a real standout and uh, definitely mm. one I'd pick in terms of. Um, uh, being a surprise, I mean, Ian tells a great story anyway. Anybody yes. lucky enough to know him knows that. But great to share it much more widely. And I think that's probably the one we've had most feedback so far with people going, wow, that was really interesting. Or, you know, I didn't know that uh, depth of uh, detail. So that was a real highlight, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also had the most downloads so far yeah. for, from the um, all the Australian ones. And, you know, some of the people that we met I'd never heard of before being, you know, from another country. But there's, there's, there's a few people that... Uh, that I really look forward to meeting because I had certainly heard of them. And, and one of them is uh, Steve Deeth, who's a very well-known pilot in Australia, uh, into all sorts of aviation. And uh, and uh, in this uh, episode, we, we discuss things like his warbird flying. And um, we'll have a listen to this clip where he talks about the various other aviation ventures he is involved in outside of the warbird season throughout the year. Terrific. Oh, my year pans out pretty busy for some reason, but um, we actually run a maintenance workshop here at Albury. We've got uh, four engineers on staff. I'm the chief engineer of that company. Uh, we also run an agricultural spreading and spraying business. Um, I'm the chief pilot of that company, same company. Um, we have one other full-time pilot and a part-time pilot there. So between all those guys, we sort of they keep the whole operation going pretty well. And I do a lot of aircraft ferrying. I pick up all the new air tractors uh, in America and bring them out to Australia. And whatever aircraft need to be moved, the um, Pack 750s from Pacific Aerospace in New Zealand. I do a lot of their deliveries around the world. Right. So I keep myself pretty busy ferrying aircraft as well as um, you know, running the office. With, with, on track. With, with the agricultural stuff, uh, what's the sort of ratio between uh, top dressing with fertiliser or spraying? Uh, it varies year by year because we're very, very much in the hands of the weather. Um, this year, as an example, we did probably 50, 50% spreading, 50% spraying. Yep. Uh, last year, the spreading might have got up to about 70%. Yep. Um, so it varies year to year. Okay. Um, we operate two Transavia air trucks on the fertiliser spreading work, um, which we've had for many years and we keep maintaining very well. And we have two uh, Cessna Huskies that we use for the spraying work. Right. We find most of our work here is mostly small area work. So we've right. we've looked at the bigger aircraft, but it just doesn't quite work off our airstrips. Most of our airstrips are farm airstrips. Yep. So they're all smaller airstrips, smaller blocks, and the smaller aeroplanes are meeting our needs really well and doing a good quality job, which is what the farmer wants. Something I've noticed here, uh, it's pretty flat around Australia. <laughs> it's compared, yes. to, compared to at home. And the, you know, the top dressing guys... Um, Usually the strips on a hill. Yep. So I guess the must you must just have long strips to get that big load off the ground. Or? Well, where we are here at Albury, we're actually on the edge of the hills. To the east of us is uh, the hills running right up to the snowy mountains. Yep. And to the west it goes flat. So we find that most of our super spreading work is done to the east of Albury. Yep. In the hills, as you talked about, uh, we do quite a bit of urea spreading for our farmers in the flatter country on wheat and canola crops. Oh yes, yes. and that's out of farmer airstrips, which, as you said, are generally flat airstrips of 700 metres or 800 metres long. Yep. And then our spraying work, we do quite a bit in the hills on thistles and the like, and then we do uh, a fair bit of it also to the uh, west on the canola and the wheat and those sort of crops. Okay. 
Just going back to the air truck, um, uh, for those that are not, probably not familiar with an air truck, I don't think you can just see an air truck and not become familiar with it. It's one of the most distinctive looking aeroplanes around. I love it. Um, it's a great aeroplane. Uh, you've had a long relationship with the air truck as a particular type, haven't you, in this yes. company? Yes. My father, Keith, bought his first air truck in 1967. It was serial number three off the production line. And we've had that here up to about three years ago when one of our local uh, farmer pilots um, Ian Bell purchased the aeroplane because okay. we were no longer actually using it for fertiliser work. So we had it here just basically as a spare aeroplane and then we finally realised we didn't really need a spare aeroplane. So um, Ian bought that office and he's um, maintained it just as a, as a historic aircraft. He doesn't use it for work um, and really, really enjoys flying it. So he actually likes the air truck for its own he enjoyment? He just loves it. You'll probably see the air truck up at um, yeah. Warbirds down under this weekend. Oh, great. And keeps it at tomorrow. Yep, yep. hanger up there. Yep. We saw it, I think, uh, when I came up with Scotty uh, for a show a little while ago. Yes. We corresponded Ian and I about that. But you're still using them. That's Yeah, we still important. have two others. The two we actually have were built in the, uh, I think the last ones, one of them was the last one built, and the other one was uh, built in the mid-80s. And they've all had new fuselages in them. Uh, the wings have been rebuilt. Uh, they both had new engines and props in them in the last couple of years. Um, we keep them inside all the time, so that makes a big difference yep. to the quality of the aeroplane. Um, most aeroplanes that are kept outside generally last about 10 to 15 years because the corrosion and the weather gets to them. But um, my father Keith has always believed in keeping aircraft inside hangars, and uh, as a result, they're, they're well maintained, and you know, we've got a fleet of guys here that look after them well. So we're still operating today. We're probably the biggest uh, fleet owner of air trucks in the world. Well, there we have it, James. That's a good good clip. That's uh, fascinating stuff. I'm really, I mean, um, Steve's a, a great coach. Always very um, happy to talk aviation with people and, and share it. Very, very well known. Very, it's probably going to blush if he hears this, but very um, uh, experienced and, and uh, does a beautiful display. Flies uh, Obviously, with the um, the uh, aerobatic team, the Southern Knights in in four Harvards and so on. So, uh, and that all that ferrying stuff. He he, uh, we've chatted a bit about. He must have a bigger passport than most of us, and, and making sure he's got all his visas up to date and enough spaces for the stamps is a pretty full on job in itself. Absolutely, absolutely. And we also talked to him about uh, fire bombing. Yep. Uh, um, which he's he's also involved in. And uh, I mean, this he, he's a fascinating chap, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was a real uh, a real bonus to be able to um, to get an interview with him. And a great day there. And that wasn't the end of the day for you, was it? When when we were at uh, Albury. No, uh, I was actually just about to say that uh, I, I uh, am extremely grateful to Steve for giving me an amazing flight up uh, from Albury up to Tsmora. And, you know, I, I was blown away by that. I didn't even know that you guys were arranging it. And uh, it was my first experience in a Harvard or a T6, as it actually is. Yep. Uh, and what a great trip. Uh, you know, you, and by gosh, that country's flat there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, said, he said you're, he's on the edge of the hills. I couldn't see the hills. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, Bev, my wife, who's Canadian, uh, reckons Australia's pretty flat too. So, uh, yes, the Kiwis and the Canadians certainly reckon Australia's pretty flat. But we uh, there's a few hills here, and uh, they can be some challenging times flying. And actually, just a, a little aside, one of the, um, the unusual uh, interviews we had uh, on your tour was we had a chance to chat with uh, the crew of the Thor, the um, C-130 Hercules uh, water bomber Ricky Rao 
um, and Tim uh, that same day, actually, wasn't it, Dave? Um, it was, yeah, yeah, and, that was fascinating. Yeah, and it was really interesting. That we had a, that came into the interview, which you'll be able to hear separately um, of the the guys talking about how the the contour and weather conditions here in Australia are challenging in a different way to North American um, uh, heavy uh, water water bombers. So uh, lots of fascinating sides we never expected to pick up on, and uh, really interesting. Yep, absolutely. Uh, another really big highlight for me on the trip was meeting Judy Pay. Yeah. Um, she's she's a well-known uh, warbird pilot and warbird owner. And uh, well, the next clip is uh, a little piece from Judy. Great. Just describe for the listeners who may not know what what you've got here. You've got a range of aircraft, but also maintenance facility for. Oh uh, yeah, we've got uh, maintenance. We've done you know built up wind hills and harbors for other people, and and um, we've because we've got this that huge wing jig. Um, which is sort of adaptable. We've rebuilt a couple of Harvard wings and people have bent them and things like that and rebuilt aeroplanes. Um, so we do restoration for other people, but um, mostly now um, we've really, our time's taken up looking after our own fleet. Which is not inconsiderable. We're going to ask you to list <laughs> off the, the it's, key it's, a, it's a big job. Yeah. Um, and we do a little bit of GA maintenance just uh, routine servicing you know 100 alleys and things like that yeah. um, but we don't have a very big customer list um, it's a very boutique sort of um, from a place but um, they're those customers are friends and it puts a bit of external money through the business <laughs> <laughs> helps it helps a little bit um, and we yeah lo- they're long-standing customers yeah. Uh, oh, that's and, good yeah so we've got the two Harvards that we mentioned before, that which we're mm-hmm. um, next to, and, and the Tiger Moth, the original yes. one, and behind us here is a, a vampire. Yeah. That's a very interesting story, um, the vampire. Yes. Oh, Judy, tell us about the vampire. <laughs> the vampire. It's very anonymous. It's, it's one of seven that we, uh, four of us syndicate, which was um, Graham Hosking, Alan Pay, Ray Villeman and myself, we bought seven vampires out from, um, from Zimbabwe. Oh, right, yep. It was the Zimbabwe Air Force. Um, which was an interesting war in itself, and the, uh, this one is uh, a single-seater. This is the only aeroplane here that doesn't fly. It's was, I've got volunteers that help out, yeah. and they have projects, and they did just a gorgeous job on this. Um, it is taxable, yeah. the engine runs, um, but when, when it was being put together, it wasn't signed off to airworthy standards, so you would have to pull the part and do it again. But it, but it is a complete aeroplane; it would be quite easy to restore. Okay. But we, we have a two-seater, which we keep down at Latrobe Valley. We can't operate it here, type. And um, you know, having one vampire is crazy enough, but having two <laughs> flying is, you know, yeah. even I'm not that, cra- that mad. Um, but they're, they're so the volunteers aeroplane. did this. But uh, but the story behind uh, this. You can see it's got no markings on it because it was involved in the bush war. Oh, right. And um, they, yeah, they took all the markings off. The one we've got flying does have markings, and um, because it was the CO's aeroplane, apparently, okay. it's a different. But all the rest are all in camouflage with little or no markings because yeah. it was one of those very nasty internal wars where you didn't know who was on your side and who wasn't, like like Vietnam, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
And, and just to talk about your two seaters, so that's in a, uh, for those who haven't seen it, we'll put a photo up on the on the, um, the website. It's an overall silver scheme, um, and again, it's got one of those roundels that I love because it's different. It's a, it's a British style, um, and it, but it has a spear through the middle of it. Um, and is that the? Is, What's the actual name of that Air Force at that point? Is it the Royal Rhodesian Air Force? Yes, Royal Rhodesian Air Force, which is quite funny because it's got RRAF yeah. and its serial number down the down the tail boom and, and people come along and say, shouldn't that be RAAF? <laughs> yes, you know, Didn't you miss something really obvious? you get obvious? something really wrong? You know? <laughs> well, I, well, well, that's terrific, isn't it? Yeah, what a, what a little moment in, uh, in a great uh, a great interview and it's some, some fascinating anecdotes from, from Judy there. Again, someone who I'm very familiar with with the, uh, seeing fly and, and chatting to at shows and, and um, so on, but uh, great to get right back to the very beginning of her career, which we, we won't spoil in this, but you've got to tune in to hear that. Oh, absolutely, yeah, that's a great story. Um, a lovely lady, um, really enjoyed visiting her collection and, and meeting her. It was uh, a, a, a really good interview, so that's one for people to look forward to fairly soon. Definitely. Another chap that I really enjoyed uh, meeting and interviewing was Andy Bishop at the uh, Tomorrow Aviation Museum. Uh, great to meet Andy, um, and as Chief Engineer of Tomorrow Aviation Museum, he has a very challenging, diverse collection of, uh, of aircraft to uh, look after from 1930s um, uh, stick and string biplanes right through to um, 1970s uh, jets um, and uh, everything in between, as they say, including a couple of unique and or very rare uh, aircraft. So, um, yeah, it was great to, great to chat with Andy, and he had a, a really interesting take on some stuff that we're familiar with. Um, yeah, well, that's right. And uh, one of the things that he actually talked to us about was the uh, intercooperation between uh, various groups. And yeah, in this uh, in this interview, he was talking about the Hudsons and uh, how Tamora has been supporting uh, the Australian War Memorial with their with their restoration. Yep. Yeah, and I think um, for those that may not be familiar, but we're close to uh, our hearts, is the uh, so um, Tamora operate the world's only. Um, airworthy Model 14 uh, Lockheed Hudson uh, type and a very important type in Commonwealth history in New Zealand, Australia, Britain, uh, Canada and of course for the US as well. Um, and the Australian uh, War Memorial has a sister aircraft, not not to be restored to airworthy, airworthy, but under restoration by a team including uh, Jamie Croker who uh, we were able to interview later on. Um, and uh, the intercooperation in both directions uh, that they were able to pull resources and share stuff, both private sector and uh, and go, you know the War Memorial is obviously a, an Australian state asset. So that was really encouraging to hear, and um, yeah, absolutely fascinating moment. Absolutely. Here's a clip. It's part of the thing about what I love about museums is we're always moving ahead. There's always new things to do, and so on. And, um, again, correcting me if I'm wrong, but I, I understand um, uh, from Jamie Croker at the, the War Memorial that you guys worked, uh, they're restoring a Hudson there, we're, we're hopefully seeing that soon um, as part of this tour, um, but that uh, you shared some of them, the information and knowledge and I think some parts uh, that were quite, uh, were some toolings or some castings? Yeah, we, right? um, we work in with, with Jamie and the, the War Memorial as much as um, we can. Yeah. Um, it, it's great uh, having someone restoring a, a Hudson to unbelievable yes. the, the, the work um, and the quality of work that they are putting into that yeah. Hudson is breathtaking yeah. uh, it, it is going to be a, a real credit to, to those guys um, nice to hear it from someone outside I agree with it, you after uh, it's, watching them do it it's, it's great um, and it, it's hard for us because you know we we maintain these things to be displayed and to be used but you know 
at heart, I would love to do what they're doing, but yeah. it's impractical. Well, that's yeah. a great thing, isn't it? It's great that we've got places like the War Memorial doing static yes. restoration of that, and that's and that aircraft is there. It's great we, you guys are doing that. You know, one of the reasons that Dave's here today is because he wanted to see the Hudson fly. Having yeah, interviewed so many, and to see a Hudson fly. It's one of my desires. So, uh, so to have both ends great. of the spectrum, yeah, absolutely, and, and it's so great. close, it, it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. And it's I mean, great. We've, we've got some beautiful examples in museums at home, but we'll never see one fly there, I don't think, so. We'll never say never, but possibly not. Yeah, well, that's right. Not, you know, we learned that with mosquitoes, didn't we? we yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and, and the Kiwis broke the ground there, and all credit to them for that. And, and I, I think the thing is, yeah, I'm really pleased to hear that you you know, you know, guys uh, here at the museum and at the, at the memorial were able to work together and solve mutually solve problems or just spread that load of figuring yeah, and, it out together. Yeah, you know, share parts, because yeah. you know, we've got parts that have come out of ours that for various reasons we will never put back into ours yeah. and you know we've been able to to gift them to the war memorial yeah to, to put into theirs or use as templates put in theirs yeah. and then they return them and yeah it's what keeps the warbird industry going it know. is we we sometimes in the game you know there's a bit where some people don't play so well with others and sometimes i find it frustrating as a journalist talking to people in different colors countries restoring the same airplane and there's a, you know my my toys your toys yeah. but it's good when people cooperate and everybody benefits that way I think. well it's what needs to happen. Yeah, it, it is just what needs to happen because it is coming increasingly challenging to, to keep these aeroplanes uh, flying. And um, unless everyone shares the information, shares the parts, shares the knowledge, yeah. um, it's just going to get yeah, really impossible. And unnecessarily yeah. Um, yeah. difficult to maintain. Oh, what a what a great moment! And I think um, just to sort of pick out a bit there, um, you know, we often hear the the classic question: someone comes up, sees an aeroplane museum, go, oh, does it fly? Is it ready to fly? Well, actually, it's a very different requirement. And one of the things that we touched on, uh, not not in the clip, but around that, is that there's bits and pieces put in the War Memorials Hudson that uh, the Tamora guys can't and won't put in theirs because it's in the way of operating it as a, as a modern aircraft and vice versa. So um, it's really good, as we said in that discussion, that you, we, we do have both and it's important that we appreciate them for their, for their merits. But it's great to hear, you know, um, Andy being so emphatic that we've got to cooperate because that's something I really, really believe in too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, the last thing I want to say on the Hudson too is uh, I want to go back to Steve Deeth and thank him for, uh, he's one of the pilots of the Hudson, mm -hmm. I just want to thank him for uh, uh, allowing me to have a look inside the Hudson and uh, he even convinced me to get up into the uh, extremely hot tower. It was a, it was a 42 degree. That was 42 <laughs> degree day and uh, and basically you could have cooked a roast in that thing um, you could yeah I mean uh, it, it, it was both a cruel and unusual punishment and something you can't miss because the turret is a very interesting <laughs> space it's a, a very small gap to get in and then you're in this sort of goldfish bowl um, with a magnificent view in all directions but yeah I don't think I envied you that uh, going in on that day Dave no I mean you know actually I've talked to a lot of Hudson Aircrew members uh, over the years and um, read a lot and, you know, heard mm. a lot. And it's not until you actually get to crawl inside an aircraft and actually do what those guys did that you really appreciate it. I found the same thing, um, you know, a couple of months ago when uh, Doug Brooker very kindly took me up in the Spitfire. I've met so many Spitfire pilots from the war and I know a lot of Warbird guys who fly the Spitfire yeah. and... And then when you actually get in it, you just suddenly get this sort of overwhelming feeling, this whole different um, uh, appreciation for what 
all these guys have been telling you over the years, and and it's it's great to be able to do that, and it's such such a, a, a an honour and a and a and a privilege and, and a pleasure to um, have been able to get up into that turret because uh, you know the the Hudson's here. Um, I've I've crawled around in, in you know several Hudsons now, um, but the only one that's got its turret fitted at the moment is the one at Wigram, and you know you can't you can't go into the museum and crawl into the no. into the turret um so i mean a huge thanks to steve for that amazing um very brief i got in and out real quick yeah. amazing experience so and, and i and you know honestly hats off to the guys who operated in those turrets uh in places like north africa and and the pacific and and even in australia because it must have been so dang hot yeah i agree, <laughs> agree with you there dave and, and i think actually that picks up a point we perhaps didn't make as often as we should have in the uh, the series because it's kind of i hope implicit but that you know you and i have been very uh, lucky we've both worked hard in our own ways to getting uh, many fascinating opportunities and but our job is to relay those to other people and it's a i'd absolutely agree with you there's a world of difference between reading about it or talking to someone about it and another thing actually flying in the aeroplane and we've both been very lucky to fly in, in some fascinating and rare machines uh, thanks to the generosity of people or opportunity or you know because it's part of the job sometimes and um, yeah. you know people say oh you're, you're, you're really lucky to have gone and flown in that and I go, oh yes um, and I'm very appreciative of that but it's also because um, you know I worked hard with uh, with people to make these things happen and then it's about sharing that information and experience onwards uh, afterwards but yeah absolutely it, 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 you don't really know what it's like until you're in it and, and I think it's easy to overlook that and it's one of the challenges the hard things we have to do is to communicate that and um, I've found for this you know I, I do generally work in print um, you know, and, and doing this podcast series has been a, a, a really interesting lesson how other means of communication um, sometimes put a different story over and um, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing the full um, 100th uh, episode of Wings Over New Zealand because it's so many different experiences you've, uh, you've managed to drag together or been through in the 100. But you can't, can't put them all in. I mean, there's <laughs> too much to cover, isn't there, Dave? That's right. There's far too much to cover from the whole 100 episodes or 99 episodes before this one. But... Uh, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, huge process just even pulling this one together with all these clips. Uh, all I can say is if you haven't listened to all the episodes, go back and listen to the ones that you haven't listened to because even if it's a topic, and, and this is coming from me, the guy who's actually making them, but even if it's a topic you're not particularly interested in, and some of the topics I don't know much about when I go into it, I always find there's just great stories. Yeah. Every time there's great stories. Uh, you know, one of the episodes that... It, I put a lot of work into and um, really, you know, worked hard to get a, 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 a really quite diverse and, and interesting episode. And unfortunately, it hasn't had many downloads. Is the one from Black Sands. And if you go back and listen to that, there's some amazing aviation stories there. People might look at it and go, "Oh, well, it's a it's a home builder's flying," but it's not just about home building, and it's about these guys, their their passions and their and and their experiences, and you know. There's some great stories there, and you know, whenever you get together with aviation people, there's always great stories come out, no yeah. matter what. Yeah. And and that's that's what this whole um, hundred episodes has been about is capturing capturing the good stories that are that are going around. You know, that's a great way so, of putting it, Dave. I, I think you you know you start off with the aeroplanes. Most of us came in perhaps through model aeroplanes or staring up at the sky or you know looking over the fence, whatever it was. And then it, you know, as we were just saying at the beginning of this uh, spot. Um, you know, you go on to the people, and uh, we've all uh, we've made some uh, very uh, firm and important friends, and a huge number of uh, uh, contacts and friends around the world through aviation, and then it goes into the stories. And, and I think the, you know the, the tour 
um, that we did with Wings Over Australia, which you know is a, a breakout element of the long long running Wings Over New Zealand thing, is that it is a huge number of stories. And I'd absolutely agree with you. It's not what you're expecting. Uh, uh, throughout the tour and throughout what we've done and what you've been doing with uh, with Wings Over New Zealand, it's not the stuff you expect. And and um, you know sometimes you'll start off well to be quiet with a pretty straightforward anecdote or whatever and then it's you know suddenly something pops up that's absolutely fascinating or really in-depth and going back to someone else we didn't mention but I would like to uh, we can't name check everyone so uh, we, we won't but I'd like to mention uh, Keith Webb um, who we did our first interview in the Wings Over Australia series and I, I really enjoyed listening to you two uh, comparing your notes about interviewing veterans and the differences and then the fact that you know you you agreed about so much of it too that was fascinating. That for me was uh, also fascinating because I don't normally get to talk with people who are doing the same thing uh, yeah. as, as what I've been doing. It's quite quite rare to come across someone else who's doing it and someone who's doing it in, a, in another country but it's a country that has a very similar philosophy and, yep. and, back, and background and history. Um, you know, there are so many things that tied in with exactly the way that I've been working or, or the, you know, the... That, uh, you know, it's hard to put into words, actually, but I've, I so appreciated sitting down and chatting with Keith about that. And, well, there were, there were a couple of moments. Great. Yeah, there was a couple of moments, wasn't there, when you both uh, one one would say, and and then this thing happens, or and you're like, yes, <laughs> I didn't know anybody yeah, yeah. else understood that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, and we've got. Uh, we should, you know, give a quick little rundown of Pracy of what's coming up in the Wings yeah. Over Australia. Um, uh, episodes that will come and in the next episode after this I'm hoping to have a Wings Over Australia straight after 100 so it'll be number 101 um, yep. we'll pro probably put out the uh, the Point Cook uh, Royal Australian Air Force Museum uh, show where you and I um, walked around the museum and, and you've been a very um, well versed guide there because you do the the guide work there. Um, you gave me an amazing tour of the museum, and or most of the museum. We'll miss a little bit of it, but uh, and um, then we also uh, met a couple of very interesting chaps, uh, Ron Gretton and Jeff Matthews. So that was, uh, you know, that was fascinating. Um, I just trying to remember. Did we also put Andy Wright into that episode? I think we did, think didn't we? We did, yeah. And uh, yep. Andy's obviously a very important contact, a colleague for both of us in different ways. And uh, well, thanks. First of all, thanks for that, Dave. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's a very special place, uh, close to close to my heart. I'm in fact off tomorrow for a um, uh, a guided tour, and um, I love volunteering at the uh, the well, we just call it the Air Force Museum, but the Royal Australian Air Force Museum, of course. Um, and uh, I think the museum does terrific work. Relies the the staff do tell us regularly relies heavily on its volunteer workforce obviously when we did the tour as part of Wings Over Australia it was all my own opinion and, and views rather than official museum uh, perspective but uh, we've, we've got a pretty good thing and I think I said in that and I'd like to say here and now that the um, the equivalent New Zealand um, uh, Air Force Museum is an excellent uh, facility and I think a very good comparison too so it's great for both of us as we're familiar now with, with both of those uh, to see the similarities and differences and I'm um, really pleased you had a, a chance to, uh, to talk with uh, Jeff and Ron because um, they were the box Kite uh, Builder team, and, and um, that's a, a whole other story, which obviously we'll pick up. So, yeah, as they say uh, on the radio, stay tuned. The um, uh, if you're happy to go with the episode 101 as, as the uh, Royal Australian Air Force Museum, I'll very much look forward to hearing that uh, again and uh, and going through uh, uh, that experience all over. Yeah, yeah, and then of course we've uh, we'll still be putting out Wings Over New Zealand shows uh, 
as well as Wings Over Australia, which is part of Wings Over New Zealand. But uh, yep. the, the Australian shows that will be coming out um, after that, we've got um, interviews with people like um, Daniel May, who uh, does archaeology, yeah. aviation archaeology, a fascinating chap. Uh, we've got yeah, we've got Mark Arbord um, from the uh, uh, Australian Warbird um, Association. Yep. Um, Stuart, Stuart Wilson, the well-known... Uh, uh, author and um, publisher and, and magazine editor, uh, yep. and Andy, uh, Andy Bishop as well as we mentioned. We've got um, Matt Austin. Well, he's involved with the uh, museum at Moorabbin, but he's also a very big fan of the um, Australian National Airways, and so uh, yes. we did a great interview with him. Uh, yep. Who else have we got there? We've got um, we go on to uh, Jamie Croker at the uh, War Memorial talking about the Hudson uh, restoration, which obviously uh, ties back into our interview with Andy at Tamora. So that that's a, yep. that was a real good left and right, um, as it were. And um, you know, uh, we keep saying highlights, don't we? There was all highlights, but um, that was a very special thing being able to see those comparisons. And um, um, just to bring a, a little update there, Jamie's running in on the uh, the final uh, final hundred meters of the of the marathon of restoring this aeroplane with with his colleagues. Um, uh, to uh, to hopefully have the thing um, uh, all rolled out in the, in the next couple of months. So uh, hopefully watching that space. But that was a fascinating one too, of course. It, well, that'll actually tie in well because it'll probably be a couple of months before this episode actually gets online. So, it might work out perfectly. His story gets told just as he's um, rolling it out. So, we'll, um, we'll have to make it happen that way, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. then we, uh, we've got a few more, haven't we? Um, yeah, so, we've got... Uh, uh, Jim, who's uh, uh, restoring the, uh, the wonderful Fokker um, tri-motor, which has yeah. visited New Zealand uh, down at Haas. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, and of course another um, great interview at Haas was Bob Delahunty, where we got to sit in the cockpit of the uh, the beautiful constellation, old Connie. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, that was that was that was wonderful. And uh, we've got um, Terry Hetherington, who runs the um, Fleet Air Museum at Nowra. Yep. Yep. And. Uh, uh, oh, and Juanita Frenzy as at well. At the very end, uh, a, a great a great note to finish on uh, Juanita, who anybody knows um, aircraft uh, profile illustration should know Juanita because she's uh, definitely one of the best. And uh, and uh, she was a fascinating brief little interview there at, at the end of it. And I think actually just talking about those interviews, um, you know, Bob Delahunty in the cockpit of the Conning, we actually interviewed Jamie in the fuselage of the Hudson. So I, I, I and there was a couple of others in the tour, I, I think that um, the best studios are aircraft interiors now. I, you know, I was actually just going to bring that up because uh, I was talking. <laughs> I was talking with Zach Yates um, only earlier today. Uh, we were talking about uh, the different shows that have been done in cockpits, and and uh, as you say, there's the constellation coming up. Um, yep. There's we, we've already put out the uh, the cockpit uh, uh, recordings with uh, in the Viscount um, at yep, Moorabbin yep. and, and and in the Bowfighter at, at Moorabbin and of course I was in yep. the um, the Firefly when we did the Firefly segment at Moorabbin um, and Absolutely. yeah we've got we've got the Hudson um, I've done one with Bill Reed and the Anson uh, I've done one yep. with uh, with Peter, Peter we heard earlier in this episode a, a clip from the one with Peter Wheeler and uh, Phil Ferner and John Wilding in the Lancaster Perfect. Um, you know and so there's there's they are. You're right. They make the best studios because you've got so much to look at, and yeah, uh, and you sort of you, you've got the feel of the aircraft while you're talking about the aircraft, and um, I don't know. They're just they're great, and you're with people. The people who have the passion for the aircraft are the guys that crawl around in the aircraft all the time, keeping it. Uh, 
either restoring it or, or keeping it uh, in museum condition. And yeah, um, yeah. you know, you, you, I think the the actual interviews pick up a bit of the soul of that aircraft. So I don't know if that you know, I don't know if it's right, but it, it just feels feels right if you know what I mean. Certainly, yeah, certainly a spirited place and so on. And, and uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And you're absolutely right. Even if you say it's on a simpler level, as there's, there's stuff to look at, you really pick things up. And that, um, well, another one we had was we interviewed uh, Ricky and uh, Tim of Coulson Aviation in the cockpit of, of uh, the Hercules water bomb. And that's a very oh, unusual aeroplane. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fascinating too. Yeah. So, and of course, oh, and, to and also, a couple of flights. Oh, yep, yep. Well, I'm not sure what we're going to do with those flights yet, but. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, another one that I did um, in in an aircraft was with uh, uh, Jessica Cooper in the um, DC three. So right. you know, I've, it, it it all it all comes together in the end when you think about it. There's quite a few of them out there that I've actually used yeah, the aircraft yeah. studios. So. Yeah, yeah cool. well, that's, that's that's great. So um, yeah, very much. I'm really looking forward to uh, to to having this broadcast out. I hope our your loyal regular listeners and and, and the Wings Over Australia listeners are, are, are going to be tuning in, obviously, and and are really keen to see the um, uh, Royal Australian Air Force Museum one coming up. But there's lots of great stuff, and uh, um, what do we hope, I suppose, is from this is that people go, oh, I didn't know that would be as interesting as it was, and go and look at some of the other episodes. That that previous '99, there's a lot of gold in there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, James. I really appreciate having you on again, and it's great to banter again. And uh, yes, uh, it's, and it's really good to touch. I hope people enjoy. It. We we love uh, chatting about aviation, and and we we know a lot of people who do that for us, and we're really pleased to be able to share that to people who otherwise wouldn't get the opportunity. Most most people don't get to talk to Steve or Judy or talk to Andy or um, you know Jamie about Hudson's or warbird flying. So you know we're delighted we can share this. So uh, it's it's a privilege to do it, but I, we hope that people also appreciate it. So it's good for them too. And also, one last thing before the segment ends, I just want to say, for the for the people who are listening to the Wings Over Australia uh, segment of the show, um, yep. if if they if they want to give us some feedback, we've also got a Wings Over Australia Facebook page and Twitter page, um, specifically for the Wings Over Australia. So you can put your feedback on Wings Over New Zealand's Facebook page. Um, or you can, uh, you know, or on the forum or, or wherever. But if you want to just have a specific Wings Over Australia discussion, um, we've got the we've got those pages there too. So just go into Facebook and look up Wings Over Australia, or go into Twitter and look up the same thing. Indeed, and it's we just love to hear the feedback. Um, you know, a lot of the time it's you, you put this stuff out there, and uh, not a lot happens sometimes. And then you're kind of chatting with someone at Nash. Oh, I really enjoyed that episode, and you go, "Well, that's yeah. great to know." So we really love to hear feedback of any kind. And of course, you know, occasionally I might have got a couple of facts wrong. Who knows? So uh, correct me. I'm delighted to get corrected and get it right. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, and that's a, the other thing about feedback is you're right that you do often hear firsthand from people rather than yeah. online. And but but with this with this whole Wings Over New Zealand series, feedback really keeps the motivation going to to, to make people like myself yeah. want to go and do more. And so we 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 need to hear ideas. We need to hear feedback. We need to hear um, you know criticism. We need yeah. to hear extra information. Anything that you can offer, anything you can say about it, any of these episodes, please, please tell us and 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 put it on the, f the Facebook page or the forum. Um, uh, you can you can even post right on the on the actual uh, show page uh, for for each of these episodes on the on the uh, Wings Over New Zealand show uh, site. You you can post a message there, and you know we read them. 
um, when I read them, uh, I'll, I'll oh, yeah. respond, to, respond to them, um, and that's what keeps me motivated. That's what makes me want to go and do more. And so if you want to keep the show going, just keep the motivation going as well. Absolutely. Look, um, you know, I'm not doing it because I'm paid. I'm doing it because we thought it was a worthwhile thing to do, and it certainly has been from our point of view. We want to share that excitement and fun. Um, and knowledge and, and learning and, and um, Dave's not doing it to, to uh, because he's paid, he's doing it because he thinks it's worthwhile so um, back it, back it, back Dave up guys Cheers James Yeah just one of the one, one little thing that I just want to um, mention is you know with any podcast you, you need to have uh, feedback and, and there are a few people who give us um, really good feedback all the time and it's it's great to have those guys but it'd be nice to have a bit more feedback from other people what, what they think um, you know further questions that we can take to the guests uh, or uh, uh, you know extra information that they might have uh, they might have out of out of the uh, stories that that come up and any ideas and uh, suggestions for f- future shows let us know we've got the Facebook page there um, we've got the forum obviously the the uh, wings of New Zealand forum there's a whole section there uh, for these episodes and um, you know, it'd be great to have uh, a bit of feedback, and also uh, if you can go onto iTunes and and rate us on iTunes and and leave a uh, a a, um, a review. Um, in the four years that we've uh, been going, it, it hasn't really had that much um, in the way of ratings or reviews on there, and that's what's really needed with podcasts because every time that you get, you know, a rating on iTunes. Uh, it, it ups your chances of being seen by people who are going on there looking for this stuff. It, it, it brings it up to the top. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but just by clicking the little stars and rating it at, you know, whatever rating you want out of the five stars, that helps. It really helps. And I'd really appreciate it if you guys can all just pop into iTunes and do that on our page. Yeah. 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 No, it's de- definitely, definitely a great thing to do. Uh, even if you don't use iTunes, uh, it, that's the fun part. For a lot of us, we don't use iTunes. I actually went and created an iTunes account to rate some of the uh, podcasts I listen to. And uh, look, it's uh, it's an important thing. It helps spread the word. Maybe you can't chip in some money to help Dave. Maybe you can. But the easiest thing you can do is just take a few minutes to, um, to tell people about it. And uh, rating it on iTunes is a really handy way of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And... and- it's all about spreading the word about the show, getting it out there so that other people become aware of it. And, uh, you know, on the Facebook page, when, when a new episode comes up, please hit like on it because the more likes we get on the Facebook page, the more people who are members of that Facebook page actually get to see it. Facebook won't show everybody uh, that post. They, they'll only show a small number of the people that post until it starts to get likes. And the more likes that it gets the more people who are actually interested in the show get to find out about it. So yeah. um, we need to we need you to just get in there. Even if you're not even interested in listening to that particular episode, we just need you to get into Facebook and hit like. Um, just so that other people can become aware of it. And and if you if you are um, someone who's you know thinking, oh this is a great episode Tell your friends on on your Facebook page and and spread spread it widely. Um, tell you if you go down the Era Club and tell them about the Wings of New Zealand show, or go down your model shop and tell everybody, or whatever you know aviation interests that you've got. Um, tell your friends that that are involved and interested in aviation, so that we just spread the word a bit. Yeah, and we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. I agree. 
And also tell them about PCDU, which is which is <laughs> Grant's excellent show. I mean, no, no laughing matter. It's a great show as well. Thanks, mate. Plane Crazy Down Under, the Australian aviation podcast. I mean, it's really, there's not that many, uh, you know, aviation podcasts over in Australia. And yours is the, probably the longest running one. Um, it's got a lot of credit with the people like the Royal Australian Air Force and all the all the industry and... and um, uh, manufacturers of aircraft and everything like that they they all come to you guys to get their uh, publicity and, and get their stories out there so you know you guys are doing wonderful work too Grant you and Steve thanks man and the team yeah we've slowed down a little but we're getting there <laughs> yeah well it's uh, it's it's quality not quantity isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah we keep telling ourselves that <laughs> Yeah, it'd be nice to have both, but you know, sometimes other things get in the way. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> well, Grant, that's been pretty much our show. This is the uh, coming to the end of the the big 100th episode celebration. Oh, mate, it's it's taken a while, but we finally got to the end of the episode. I mean, this is huge, man. I mean, what is it? Mm. About three hours so far? Yeah, I think it's just over three hours wow. now, and I don't know whether anyone else is going to get to the end with us here. They were. <laughs> Oh, that's what the pause button is for, mate. That's what the pause button is for. You stop it, you go away, do something else, you come back and you start it up again where you left off. Maybe we should have told them that at the beginning. <laughs> nah, keep it as an Easter egg. Let them find it right at the very end. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and, and being my co-host. It's been actually really good to do that because, you know, we've got such a good uh, uh, rapport on the uh the, the the live show that we do and and i i just thought well it'd be perfect to have you on for the hundredth as well so Thanks, i really appreciate it no it's been great i've it's been an honor to come on i mean i i've watched you start this up and make it happen and it's been incredible to see it get to 100 episodes watching all that you've done so it's been a hell of a journey hasn't it it has, it has, and you say you watched me, but you actually helped me because I had no idea what I was doing on the technical side, and I kept firing questions to you, and I'm, I'm still firing questions <laughs> at you now and then. But <laughs> yeah, well, you know, everyone I mean, needs a geek. <laughs> I just think it's great that you know we've sort of worked as a team together to to make this thing happen, and I I really appreciate all the all the ex- excellent um, advice and uh, you know tips and everything you've given me along the way. Mate, and other people out there too. Yeah, well, look, look, Steve and I always took the view that you know, we're out to help. We want to build people because the audience and the environment, it's not like it's a, it's a zero-sum game. It's the more podcasts that are out there, the more the, the listening audience is, is better off because there's something for everyone. And you may not like every single aviation podcast that is out there, but isn't that great that you've got so many to choose from to go, I like these ones but not that one? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the things that I've always wanted to do with this too is give it a little bit of variety. There are some podcasts out there that just talk about, um, you know, learning to fly, and there's others that just talk about airlines all the time and stuff like that. I, I want to give it a bit of variety, so there is something for everybody. But because um, because New Zealand doesn't really have that many podcasts of any type really going on, um, so you know, with the with the aviation scene, I don't think there's anything outside of what I'm doing that I can think of, apart from what you guys occasionally have New Zealand topics on. but Yeah, yeah, because well, Adam over here who does uh, Go Fly Australia, that's all Australian-focused at the moment. Um, mm. We do the occasional Kiwi thing, but on the whole we're us and everything else. So it's it's really you, mate. I don't know of any other Kiwi ones at the moment. 
So, no. yeah, 100 episodes in. On ya. Yeah, yeah, and onwards and upwards. Um, as as we as we mentioned with James, we've got quite a lot coming up uh, with the Wings Over Australia shows, and the the very next show will be uh, James and I at Point Cook. Cool. And uh, after that, we'll uh, have some New Zealand stories and some more Australian stories, and they'll yeah. just keep on rolling out. So yeah, so um, well, I guess that uh, basically, I just want everybody to keep enjoying the show. Keep. Um, sending in the, uh, the suggestions and the feedback and also uh, keep on listening to our live show as well and if they don't if they don't listen to it live if they can't listen to it live then it's that's a podcast as well from Warbird Radio so highly recommended yeah, that one yeah there's, there's plenty more um, to come and and uh, let's just keep on keeping it rolling that's the one mate uh, you've done a heck of a job to get to here and I know there's so much in the can waiting to come out so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it I I'm hanging out to hear what you come up with for the next ones, and I'm also looking forward to uh, when I can actually join back in on the live show because my day job just keeps getting in the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. We're, hopefully, you'll be back soon. We we yeah. enjoy having you on. Thanks, mate. I, I really enjoy being there. But uh, yeah, yeah. One of these days, uh, we'll move office. So I, I won't be travelling, and I'll be able to get into somewhere where I can quietly record. <laughs> Well, I guess it's time for the last word on this humongously long show, and uh, I just want to say two things. Thanks to all the listeners, and thanks to all the interviewees. It's been great, and let's keep it going. Definitely, mate. The listeners make it worth doing, and the guests make it possible. So, And, uh, dude, as, as, a, as a partial listener and a somewhat guest and co-host and all that, mate, thanks to you. Uh, this wouldn't happen without all the effort, and I know what's involved in producing a podcast, and you do a great job. So thanks, Dave, from everyone out here listening. You're doing a great job. Keep it happening. Well, cheers, mate. And we'll see you next show. Woohoo!